You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. Hold your ears, folks. It's showtime. People pay good money to see this movie. When they go out to a theater, they want cold sodas, hot popcorn, and no monsters in the projection booth. Everyone pretend podcasting isn't boring. Turn it off. There is a creature alive today who has survived millions of years of evolution without change, without passion, and without logic. It lives to kill. A mindless eating machine. It will attack and devour anything. It is as if God created the devil and gave him jaws. This is Universal's extraordinary motion picture version of Peter Benchley's best-selling novel, Jaws. I just found out that a girl got killed here last week. And you knew it. You knew there was a shark out there. You knew it was dangerous. But you let people go swimming anyway. dealing with here is a perfect engine uh an eating machine we're not only going to have to close the beach we're going to have to hire somebody to kill the shark bad fish but i'll catch him and kill him did you hear your father out of the water now this shark swallow you whole you're going to need a bigger boat that's a 20 footer 25 three tons of them Scheider, Robert Shaw, Richard Dreyfus, J. 
Jaws. See it before you go swimming. Ahoy, and welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me is Mr. Chris Sasser. Seen one of your rocking chair one time. Also joining us is Mr. Jamie Benning. I used to hate the water. Y'all know me, know how I earn a living. I'll podcast about Jaws for you, but it ain't going to be easy. It's not like we're going to break down each minute of the film, chasing interviews and musical motifs. This movie will swallow you whole. There'll be spoilers for all the tourists, and it ain't going to be pleasant. But I value my podcast a lot more than 3,000 listeners. I'll podcast for three, but I'll put effort in for ten. For that, you get all the themes, the subtext, the whole damn thing. Chris, what is your history with Jaws? When did you see it? What did you think? And what is your connection with the film? I vividly remember the summer of 1975. I was only five, but Jaws was a huge thing, as as we all know. And uh, five-year-old kids saw that iconic poster, you know, naked girl, giant shark, those teeth. Had to see it. Um, I think my parents had already seen it once. And I bugged them and bugged them. And they finally took me at a drive-in of all places. And, uh, you know, everybody will talk about Star Wars changing our lives. For me, it was Jaws. It just connects on some primordial level. I, I don't uh, don't know how or, or why exactly, but something about that mythical shark really, really gets to me. It made me want to write stories immediately, and it made me want to make films, I, I believe, between that and Star Wars. And, uh, you know, it was just everything was Jaws, you know. You know, and I, it still is, you know. I ha- uh, I'm just totally obsessed with that film, for better or for worse. And, Jamie, how about you? I was born in 76, so I missed the cinema release, but I remember seeing it on either a VHS or... Uh, Betamax or Betamax, as you you guys would say, at a friend's house. And I was aware that I was too young to be watching it. I would have been around seven, I guess, six or seven. And I was terrified from the start. In fact, I was still terrified years later, many years later. I think I'm probably a weaker swimmer because of Jaws. You know, you hear these stories of people saying that they were scared to get in, even in swimming pools. I was one of those guys. I have a very vivid memory, and I hope it's not one of those false memories, but I have a vivid memory of my folks going to the drive-in. We were in Seattle. I was five years old. It must have been a re-release of the film because it would have been 77, I think. And of course, you know, movies would come out when they came out, but then they would have re-releases throughout time. might have been 78. Yeah, I remember the 78 release. I specifically remember waking up and seeing that scene with the guy's head popping out of the boat. And that was enough to traumatize me for a long time. Well, you know, Jamie said, you know, he stayed, kept, kept him away from the water. Um, I love the water, but in all truth, I couldn't swim in a pool alone and well until my 30s. I just, yeah. So maybe I did see it too young. And then this movie is just 
every time I know people will say this, but this is 100% the honest truth. If I'm flipping through channels and Jaws is on, it's going on. Whether it is five minutes into the movie, it is five minutes from the end of the movie. Whenever I see this movie, I will watch it. And then if it is brought back out to theaters, if there's special summer screenings, I know right now with the pandemic that they are bringing out older films to the drive-in. Jaws is one of those. As soon as I am able to see it, I will go see it because this movie just, it fires on all cylinders and it just always makes me happy to watch it. There are films that I, you know, you, you see on TV and you think, oh, if only I joined this 20 minutes ago or 20 minutes later, 20 minutes on from now, I'll invest some time and watch it. But with Jaws, I think no matter where you join it, it's a great scene and you're you're hooked in straight away. It's one of those rare films where there's not a single scene that that feels, you know, excessive. It's all it's all moving the plot forward. It's moving everything forward, the story forward, and you're 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 pulled straight in. It's unavoidable. Yeah, this movie builds and builds and builds and you're right. And uh, you're right. There is no scene where I'd be like, "Oh man, I really I just don't like that." There's no line reading where I'm just like, "Uh, that could have been better." There's nothing in this movie where I'm just like, "Oh man, I that that just always rings false." Nothing. And it's amazing because this movie is a mix of professional actors and local actors or non-professionals. And you would never know. I mean, those two kids with the fin out in the water, those were just two kids. And, just, you know, the, the way the wave hits the one kid in the face and it kind of damages his line. It's perfect. I love it. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> it's, it's amazing given what a horrible, troubled production it was that everything works so well. And there's not a wasted scene. It's, it's amazing. I think a lot of that comes down to Verna Fields and her editing. You know, I've heard the stories about how she used every single frame available of, of the shark to try and get that part of the movie across to people. But also, you look at the deleted scenes on it, there are none where you go, oh, I wish that would have been in there. Only maybe because, oh, there's more Jaws. I want to see more Jaws. But there's, there's no scene that was cut that feels like it needs to go back in. There's definitely some stuff at the beginning which I want to talk about because I wasn't really even aware of it until I saw your filmumentary, Jamie. And I think that the way that they cut out a lot of stuff at the beginning was really super smart. But before we even get to that, I just want to kind of set the stage here because Jaws, it hit so well. And I think because the 70s were just rife with nature gone wild films. And this is before Jaws and definitely after Jaws, but there were things that were coming out. And I, I think it was because, and for people that don't remember this, before we had the EPA in the United States and before there were cleanups in other countries, the world was really going to shit as far as just how ecologically damaged things were. You know, this is... 15 years after Silent Spring, I think, and just talking about how dangerous DDT and pesticides and all these things are, and then, you know, waste, toxic waste from different places, and just me being 48 years old, you, Chris, being, what, 50 years old, I mean, you remember the Iron Eyes Cody crying. I'm just going to bring up Iron Eyes, yep. I mean, yeah, everything sucked, you know? <laughs> and, <It did. laughs> and that went right into our movies, and we just saw how crazy things was. I mean, there were movies in the 50s talking about radiation, so then you get giant ants, giant grasshoppers, all that kind of stuff, but in here, now you got fucking giant rabbits, uh, more giant ants, all of these things. And I think that really comes out of just how awful the ecology was. Yeah, I would agree. Until Joe Dante kills his piranhas by polluting them to death. Right. 
<laughs> I think that's one of the mistakes that's made with monster movies that it's about the monster. I mean, this movie is so the shark is is so driven and so singular that it gives a chance for the other characters to kind of thrive. Um, so all of those films that tried to get in there, and I'm sure we'll talk about them later, to replicate the formula, fall flat on their face. Because this is about the characters, it isn't necessarily about the nature. It's definitely about being outside and being amongst nature. And I think that might have something to do with the independent film movement and, you know, handheld cameras and not being tied to the studio in the same way that a lot of films were at that time. Obviously, this is a studio film, but I think there was a certain movement there, you know, Spielberg being a big part of that, of course. The other thing I think that plays into this as well is the idea of slasher films were yet to have their big heyday with things like uh, Halloween, which was an independent film kind of you're talking about how this was a studio film but yet it didn't feel necessarily like a studio film spielberg was actually physically far enough away that he didn't have this the studio breathing down his neck thank goodness for that this is post texas chainsaw massacre and there were copycats coming out of that and if you you can cast jaws as a slasher film because it follows a lot of the same beats but the slasher films, the, the bad slasher films are about the killer. Like you were saying, this isn't necessarily about the shark. This is about the people and the human relationships. And we don't even really get to hunt the shark until about midway through the movie. And we can really divide this movie up into the land and the sea. And we get some scenes because we are on an island, so we're pretty close to, to the ocean, I should say. But so we get those moments, but really the whole second half of this movie is set on the ocean and it just becomes a whole different movie once we leave on that trip. Yeah, I think, you know, that time on, on land, it gives the, the characters a chance to be defined. Um, you know, you've you've got uh, instantly as they introduce Brody, we see that he's kind of insecure. He's he's a kind of fish out of water himself. You know, he's not in his own environment and you know, you meet Quint, who's this kind of drunken version of what we know from kind of pirate movies, maybe. And then Brody's like the intellectual, but also insecure. None, none of them are actually particularly likable initially. But when you go through the film, as it goes through, by the time you get to the boat scenes, you're with them 100%. You, you're on that boat. Brody is our, our gateway. And he's a fish out of water, as you said the whole time and it just builds on that and by the time you're on the boat you're totally out of the element and trapped and it's just claustrophobic and perfect i like that they don't give us too much of brody's backstory i've always been curious what that backstory would be as far as him in new york what leads him to the decision to move to amity because as we've all said he's a fish out of water because this is a totally different setting than New York, and we know what New York in the 70s was like. I mean, it was a pretty rough place, and I can imagine, I always picture him almost moving from the French connection to <laughs> Amity, like, maybe he's tired of Popeye Doyle taking all of his collars, and he's just like, I I'm done with this, I want to move someplace a little bit quieter, only to realize that this is maybe not the most idyllic place. I do like that he is our, our gateway, as you say, Chris, because he well, he's Roy Scheider, and he's just so charismatic. I mean, Roy Scheider could could and did carry movies, even though a lot of times he was second banana in the early part of his career. 
Uh, Scheider is is terrific. And I always wondered, you know, there's that scene in the hospital after their kid has <laughs> uh, been in shock and she and she says, you want to take him home? And she's like, his wife is like, back to New York? You know, what's going on there exactly? Yeah. She want to go back to New York? I don't, I, I'm not really sure how to read that. It always gave me the impression that she was against the decision of moving to Amity and it's kind of his fault that they're there. And it was a kind of, you know, passive aggressive uh, move to blame him about their son's uh, current state. You know, um, it's great. There's so there's so many of those little moments kind of sprinkled throughout where you're given just enough to wonder, but you're not given enough to definitely know. And I think that really is a, an important part of the film that enables the characters to grow in our heads rather than have everything pinned down and defined. You know, and it's better better then, I think, because, you know, nowadays everything has to be explained and have a huge backstory. It takes some of the the magic out of it. I think I think you need mm. those unanswered questions. Yeah, well, they're, they're morally complicated people, aren't they? They're, it's not just good versus bad. You think, well, why doesn't he shut down the beach? Well, you know, why isn't he doing this? Oh, OK. You know, if this had been made today, you'd have to have that explained in black and white for a six-year-old kid to understand this is a family movie, right? It was a PG, I think, was it, on its initial release? So it's a family movie, and yet there is this ambiguity there in terms of their their morals and their decisions. And I think that's why we're still talking about it now, in our, you know, far into our adulthood. I think you actually know more about Hooper and Quint than you ever learn about Brody, even though we are with Brody for a lot more of the movie. But he doesn't get a moment, like, Jumping ahead a little bit, when they're on the boat and Quint gives the famous Indianapolis speech, we learn a lot about Quint in that scene. We even learn more about Hooper. We've learned that he crewed uh, three trans packs, that he works at the Oceanographic Institute. We learn that Mary Ellen Moffat broke his heart. So we have a lot more information about him. But then Brody's over on the side, and there are so many moments where it is Hooper and Quint are framed in a two-shot, and Brody is off. He gets his own shot, and we never really hear a story from him. We don't get to see his leg. I just think it's more that him being the outsider and the fish, he's just totally out of his element, and it just compounds that. He doesn't have the scars, and you know, I think it just shows him being more outside of these guys, prepared to do the job, as it were. I've always wondered if he carries more of the scars on the inside kind of thing, if he's just seen too much in New York. I always got the impression that maybe he, you know, might have been discharged or something had he not taken this job. Um, Maybe something happened back in New York that kind of put him in a difficult position. And Your arrest record is 400% higher than any other officer, which is why it's high time that such skills were put to better use. In the country? Yes! Lovely. Sergeant, I kind of like it here. But you've always wanted to transfer to the country. In 20 years or so, yes. Well done you. Yeah, it's interesting because I think, you know, we're, we're, we're used to the kind of stereotype of the New York cop. So it doesn't necessarily need to be fleshed out that, mu- that much for us. And what Chris said is, you know, is, is perfect because you you get to go on the, on the journey with these three guys. But two of them are well-defined and one of them is the outsider and we're kind of the outsider with him in a way. So we're kind of looking for the the cues and is this the right thing to do? Is this the wrong thing to do as we go through the movie with him? I think that's um, testament to, to Gottlieb's writing. 
I always complain about in movies where you get the new person who comes in and then they get everything explained to them. Martin is the new person. Brody is the new person coming to this. And he has to, excuse my pun, has to learn how to, to swim the waters of Amity and of Amity politics. And that is so important for the first half of this film. I mean, people have said it before, and I'll say it again, that the mayor is really the villain of the first half of the film, that he's the monster that has to be defeated in the first half. Martin has to figure out how to get around these things, and he's pretty weak at the beginning of the film. He will kowtow to what the mayor, the newspaper, the real estate magnets, you know, all of these guys have to say. He'll go along with it and until he has had enough, until he makes a stand. Murray Hamilton is the, is the movie's secret weapon. You know, we always talk about the big three and, you know, Shaw, Dreyfus, and Scheider, and rightfully so, but... Hamilton is so good in this movie. He's right on target. Hamilton and his jackets. The jacket. <laughs> That's the cigarette yeah. that he never, never lights. He keeps unlit until, 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 until he's in the hospital. <laughs> so. uh, it was only when I watched the, the recent restoration of Jaws that I realized that the shirt, that the jacket, sorry, was stripy as well as having anchors on it. I thought it was just like a pale blue, but it had like a, almost like a pinstripe down it as well. And they found that in a charity shop on the island whilst filming, which I think is a great, great addition because everybody remembers that jacket. But I think, you know, in terms of Mervon, I think he's a, he's the victim of his own drive, isn't he? To make the town bigger than it can be and, you know, keep all the, the, uh, the people coming in for the 4th of July. And he, he, his drive is purely money and he becomes a victim of that. And when you see him in that hospital, it's great great piece of acting when he's kind of talking to himself about what he's going to be saying in the to the press or to a press release you know i was i was doing and he's kind of practicing the lines i was doing the thing i was you know it was in the interests of the island and and you just see him kind of crumbling it's fantastic to watch and a pen larry yeah a pen you know because you're going to do what you do best you're going to sign this voucher so I can hire a contractor. I, I, don't, I don't know if I can do that without... Uh... I'm going to hire Quint to kill the shark. Hoggers. What? Hoggers. What? What are you talking about? Larry, the summer is over. You're the mayor of Shark City. These people think you want the beaches open. I, I was... I was... I was acting in the... In the town's best interest. That's right, you were acting in the town's best interest, and that's why you're going to do the right thing. That's why you're going to sign this, and we're going to pay that guy what he wants. Martin. Martin. My kids were on that beach, too. Sign it, Larry. Oh, when he delivers that line that his son was on that beach, too, man, it just breaks my heart. And it, it gives, I mean, literally, I just got chills thinking of it. For folks that don't know, Jamie is a creator of, well, he's doing a podcast now, but I came to Jamie through his filmumentaries, which are documentaries that are made about films while you're watching the film. It's like a, it's like a audio commentary on steroids and it's like a making of on steroids. It's like you're watching the movie, but you're getting more than the movie. You're getting the comments from the people that made the movie, just so many different things. And I had no idea, Jamie, about the beginning of the movie after Chrissy is killed and when Martin finds out about it, there is a lot of fat in that section. We get now when we watch it, we hear Polly, right, talking about how the students from the karate school are karate chopping the picket fences. 
but we get so freaking much of that. I think we get three different people that bring that up in these early scenes that were thankfully cut out. Yeah, as I said, there's a lot of stuff that you would never want back in the movie. And you're right. It just, I don't know whether it was shot to kind of, oh, we'll either use this one, this one, or this one. I don't know if the intention was ever to use all, all three mentions of the picket fence, but there is a lot of fact, you know, there's that little moment where, when Mervorn is first approached and they say that, you know, we, we found a body on the beach and there's the whole band going off and the march and the parade and everything. And it cuts right there as we know it. But that went on for like another three minutes or something. <laughs> All of this kind of exposition that, that wasn't needed. And again, Werner Fields just keeping it tight, keeping it timed, keeping it rhythmic and keeping those key points in there was really uh, an amazing job. I normally complain of the people doing the opposite of the axiom as far as their telling and not showing. I don't ever need to see those kids breaking fences. I just need Polly talking about it once, and that's it. And I don't need the guy complaining about it. I don't need the mayor talking about it. I don't need the, the newspaper man talking about it. I'm sure you're right that they just shot a lot of extra coverage. But when you see how you put it all back together as far as they would have had this scene, then this scene, then this scene, and then more than what we normally get. It's just like, wow, they did such a good job of just giving us enough to move this along, keep things going, and give us enough information that it never feels like we're missing anything. Yeah, because those those moments talking about the fence are to kind of inform you, the audience, that this new chief is having to deal with some tiny, petty problems um, and we get the feeling there's something big on the horizon, right? Maybe he's dealt with big things back in New York because that's what you'd expect with a New York cop. So for him, it's like, oh, wow, is this, is this my life now? And that's, that's all it needed. One mention of the fence and then we can move on to the next point. I have to ask you, what brought you to do the filmumentaries and what was kind of the chronology? Because you've done more than Jaws. You've done, as far as I remember, I know, I remember Raiders. I remember Star Wars. Did you do one for Empire as well? Yeah, well, the first one I did was Empire. Initially, it was to kind of just teach myself what was then Final Cut Pro 7. And uh, I didn't want to make a wedding video. So I decided I can make an ultimate making of. Let's see if there's enough material out there. And I knew Empire didn't have a huge amount. I knew Star Wars had quite a bit in it and Jedi had quite a bit, but Empire didn't. So I set myself a challenge. So I then did Empire, which was called Building Empire. I then did Returning to Jedi a couple of years later. And then after that, I did Star Wars Begins and Raiding the Lost Ark. And the idea really was I would see all of this making of material and I'd see it in the official documentaries. I'd see it on like EPK stuff. I'd see it on shows on TV. I'd hear it on the radio. I'd, you know, see it on a VHS. I'd see it on a documentary about, I don't know, Industrial Light and Magic or about Mark Hamill or Steven Spielberg or whatever it happened to be. And I thought I can pull all of this stuff together and create something a little bit different. I always liked you know, DVD commentaries were like a wow moment when DVDs first came out. I remember buying Ghostbusters was my first DVD and the commentary on there was fantastic. And I really enjoyed that idea of creating a commentary that would not just be, you know, a bunch of guys and girls talking about the movie right now, but you'd get to hear from them from the time and and from right now. And, and therefore, it's interesting to hear people's story change over time as they, you know, when they initially shot it or as they were shooting it even or, you know, 40 years later reflecting back on it. So the idea was just to put all of that stuff in there, deleted scenes, alternate takes, unused music, different music tracks in, in the case of uh, some of the Star Wars movies and um, just kind of try and make 
the best thing I could. You know, they're, they're, they're pretty busy. You have to pay attention. It's not the sort of thing you can just listen to while you're doing something else. But, um, I made them for ultimately for me and people like me. And it turns out there's quite a few people. So that's good. (laughs) Yeah. I thought they were really great. Um, just so you know, Oh, thank you. I've enjoyed them. How did you decide to do Jaws and what were some of your sources for that one? Well, with Jaws, I'd just done um, Raiding the Lost Ark and that was like 16, 15, 16 months of work or something. You know, it's a hobby. It's a hobby. So I'm not doing it full time, you know, because I'm working for money in a proper job. But I'd finished that and I got contacted by a guy called Jim Bella who runs JawsCollector.com and he just approached me and said, oh, man, I love your Raiders one, but I'm a Jaws obsessive. Please make one about Jaws. And I thought, well, I knew I know about Empire Strikes Back and Star Wars and Return of the Jedi and Raiders of the Lost Ark. To a certain extent, they were the films that I knew the most about, I guess. Jaws, because I was terrified of the film for many years, uh, I had it on VHS, I had it on DVD, but I didn't necessarily know that there was any more... Um, space for making another making of you know at this point we'd had the official one that was on the vhs and dvd i think or maybe just the dvd and we'd had the shark is still working and we had there was another one called in the teeth of jaws i think it was called as a bbc it was put on the bbc over here and i thought look you know this we know about this film there's there's great books surrounding it is there another perspective and jim got back to me and said well look he helped um Matt Taylor create that Memories from Martha's Vineyard book. And he said, look, there's so many people locally that have got photos and stories and different perspectives, you know, that we've heard from Spielberg and we've heard from Dreyfus and we've heard from the main players. But how about we look into to some of the, the locals and some of the other stories amongst it? So Jim kind of bombarded me with all this material. And I kind of declared online that I was doing it on Jaws. And by this time, you know, YouTube was very much... Uh, a resource that we could use beforehand when I was doing Building Empire. This was 2006 back then. It wasn't necessarily as full of all those archival things that you might expect to find today. I put it out on the internet that I was doing it. And another guy got in contact with me, a guy called Clark Smith. He said, look, I, I tried to make a 25th anniversary documentary from the point of view of the people on the island. And I've got all these interviews and I'm never going to use them. Do you want them? And, you know, there was all these fantastic little snippets from from people, all on video, shot on high eight, but I was only just going to use the audio to sort of lay under their relevant scenes. And then Jim said, oh, I, I that gap you've got there, like we'd have like fortnightly or weekly meetings. He said, that little gap there. See the guy in the shorts on the left, the kid? Uh, yeah. He said, I've got his number if you want to call him. <laughs> so... So he was he was absolutely instrumental in that, and he's a, he's a lovely guy, Jim. We we chatted recently about another idea I had about Jaws. Still questioning whether is there still a chance to do something else on Jaws, but yeah, he was kind of my creative producer on that, and we kind of toed and froed over over months. Uh, that took about a year as well to do. Yeah, it was great when I put it out there because there's so many people that love this movie and know it inside out or think they know it inside out, but still hadn't heard these kind of unique perspectives like. Uh, the woman who played uh, a character in the hospital briefly because she was dating the props guy at the time. And she had some photos that would never been seen otherwise, um, which I kind of restored and put up there. So you think about the credits. This is what I always think about with these movies. You think about the credits on a film back in 75. There's probably 200 people on there. 
but there's probably thousands involved that, that weren't credited. So there's all these perspectives out there that are all different and all give a different kind of texture and a different, uh, different layer to, to actually what happened. And Chris, tell me a little bit more about you and your uh, Shark City site. Uh, Shark City was just uh, fulfilling an obsession. You know, I just uh, collected as many pictures as I could of the shark and, and the movie. And I had them all on the computer. And then, you know, I said, you know, it'd be great if these were all in one place. So I just started putting them up there to see if other people would enjoy it. And that's pretty much how that came to be. One of the th- the things that I challenged myself when putting together this episode was, can we talk about things that haven't been talked about a thousand times before? Because there are minute-by-minute podcasts of Jaws. There is currently, um, I can't remember the name of the network, Wonderly, I think, that's doing a Jaws thing. And it's like, okay, yeah, Jaws has been talked about a ton. Are there ways that we can talk about it that are slightly different? I'm not sure. At the end of this podcast, hopefully we will have been able to do that. Hopefully we'll be able to, you know, have more people go to Shark City, go to the filmumentary and be able to experience these things because there are a lot of things that I haven't seen that I never knew. I mean, the one thing, Jamie, that I love about the filmumentary that you did was I've heard Richard Dreyfus tell the same story about Jaws so many times. I mean, literally, they use his line as the title of one of the major documentaries about Jaws. The shark is still working. You know, this whole, like, oh, I would go around and people had these radios and that the shark wasn't working. Yeah, Richard, we've heard it. But what I haven't heard was the stuff that you had in your filmumentary where Dreyfus was not too happy. He thought that the film was going to be a disaster and he is doing everything that he possibly can to distance himself from Jaws, which is just hilarious because it seems like, and please correct me if I'm wrong, it feels like it's in that period of time between him being on set and it coming out and being this huge box office bonanza, it feels like he is trying his best to just be like, yeah, no, that was a mistake. I don't want anything to do with it. You know, Richard is an interesting guy. I heard him recently interviewed on a, a podcast here in the UK um, that a film critic, Mark Kermode, does. And he has said many times that, you know, my favorite subject is myself. And he seems a very, <laughs> very sort of self-aware and, and, and sort of self-indulgent at the same time. He he came, you know, he tells that story about getting in, uh, taking Jaws, which was a movie he would rather see than be in. But then he saw himself in that. Canadian movie, I think it was that Diddy Kravitz movie and thought, if I don't get another job, I'm finished. So I think he's a kind of an insecure and pretty emotional guy at times. I've seen him. He was on an Irish chat show where I think Robert Shaw's granddaughter or something got introduced and he just starts crying, you know, so he's, you know, he's a pretty emotional guy. And I think having not seen the film and maybe he'd not seen any dailies or not seen any, uh, you know, rough cuts of the movie. He just kind of based it purely on the experience that he had, which was having a rough time. You know, it was, it was a tough shoot and it was difficult, but he says, doesn't he say something about I've made a mistake as an actor. It was a mistake. Uh, The film's not bad, um, but I made a mistake. And then, you know, as soon as the film comes out, he's kind of reassured because of its success. And then he kind of reinvents his little stories and his anecdotes and repeats them forevermore. It's interesting. That's the stuff I love finding, though. You know, these these moments where 
I think I had one on the Star Wars Begins where Mark Hamill talks about production had to be stopped in Tunisia for the Tatooine scenes because it was ladybug mating season. You know, he even says that's the kind of thing you never hear of in a making of documentary. Now, to me, that's like, right, that's going in. <laughs> and it was the same. It was the same with this with Dreyfus. Um, I think he's an interesting guy. And I, I'd love to have a, a longer conversation with him and get just beyond this kind of rehearsed anecdotes, you know, and get kind of a little bit deeper into um, how he reflects on those experiences he had so, so many years ago now. Yeah. And that's one thing, you know, talking about the goal that I've given myself for this episode to say something that hasn't been said before. Can we get away from what I've heard a thousand times before? So I think you being able to talk to people that have never been talked to before or wanted to tell their stories. I mean, in your filmumentary, you're interviewing, um, I think there's a, a carpenter that worked on it, and he's got some of the best stories I've ever heard about the making of Jaws. Was this, um, was this Kevin Pike who talks about how he got the job by being a busboy and Joe Alves, the production designer, had left his briefcase full of storyboards in the restaurant as they left this restaurant after being kind of loud and um, and, and noisy in the restaurant. Uh, they, they left and he saw, oh, wow, there's this briefcase here. I better go after them. And then he realized this was a big deal. And Joe Alves said, you know, you saved my life inside of storyboards. Do you know what storyboards are, you know, son? And Kevin, being this young guy, said, I don't know, what's that? And he said, oh, it's like a cartoon that we draw to, to show what shots we're going to shoot for a movie. And he's like, oh, you're making a movie. What's it about? And he said, oh, it's about, a, you know, a shark that's going to eat your whole family. And then the following day or following week, he bumped into some of the same guys that were there with Joe Alves at that night and said, uh, give me a job. And he got a job as a laborer, painting some of the beach huts and painting the sharks even because they arrived yellow i think you know with this um kind of exterior latex material or whatever it was and he had to paint them up and learn how to sandblast them so they had the skin you know like a shark that wouldn't just kind of reflect back like plastic under the water and you know he's the guy that went on to make the delorean for back to the future and the scout walkers for the endor scenes the return of the jedi so i love that kind of humble beginning and that kind of lucky moment that sliding door moment where he took the opportunity give me a job and then just went on from there. I was going through just when you thought it was safe, a Jaws companion. And one of the quotes from Dreyfus, I think it was from the New York Times, he called it the turkey of the year. It was a waste of my time as an actor. It was not fulfilling. I had no sense of getting off on it. It was kind of like the guns of Navarone. I'd rather see the movie than act in it. Definitely not what we hear now. But it's interesting, isn't it? There's still little sprinklings of that because I think he now says that when he read the script, he said to Stephen, it's the kind of movie I want to see but not be in. You know, the idea of being in open water for six months isn't, isn't attractive. So he's taking like little snippets around that central message that he hated the film, and he hated the experience to now kind of um, using that as a way to tee up there. But it was a great film and I had a great time and Robert Shaw was a was difficult but we had a great relationship and I love that though I love those alternate perspectives that you get when it's the same incident has happened but you just get all these I mean you try and remember something you did however many years ago and talk to the people that were there with you you'd all have completely different stories have you guys ever seen Robert Shaw's son do his impersonation of his father it's kind of freaky it is amazing <laughs> you all know me how I earn a living 
A huge thank you to the Daily Jaws fans all around the world for your support in this personal project, The Shark is Broken, about my dad and the making of Jaws. We hope to see some of you in Brighton or in Edinburgh. The Daily Jaws, not a bad website for this facility. Because he's doing a show over here in, or well, was doing a show over here in London before the, the pandemic hit. So I was hoping to go and see it with a good friend of mine who's another Jaws obsessive now. I mean, you know, making Inside Jaws did make me a Jaws obsessive. And uh, it's, you know, seeking out new Jaws material is always fun. And seeing him arrive and doing that impression, it's like, wow. Yeah, you, you, you do share a lot of DNA with your dad. The one thing I want to talk about you, Chris, as far as the Shark City site is, you know, I don't think maybe the majority of our listeners will remember just how much of a th- phenomenon Jaws was. You know, I talked about, yeah, it came out in 75 and would come out again in 78 and just like these re-releases. Okay. But that was fairly typical for stuff. What was not typical for a movie at that time was the phenomenon of lines around the block. And this was one of the biggest blockbusters. And that was a term that had been used before, but this really defined what a blockbuster movie was. And along with that, you got all of this merchandising, which was just crazy. And that's one of the things I love about your site is just how many pictures of merchandise there were, things that you would never associate with Jaws and things that are just like, when I see these pictures, they kind of kick up memories like, oh yeah, I remember trying to do like a game where you had a shark mouth that would open and close and you're trying to you know fish stuff out of the shark mouth. And it's just like... Like Buckaroo, right? Yeah, exactly. Like Buckaroo game, yeah. My uncle had that. Yeah. It's just wild. It the amount of merch was crazy. That shark was everywhere. In the newspaper every day, political cartoons. I remember going to the dentist as a little kid. And after you had your checkups, you always got a prize or something. I still remember he had a, a bucket of Jaws rings, little plastic rings. I wish I still had them. but <laughs> I used to like going to the dentist so I could get the Jaws ring. Jaws popsicles, Jaws comic books. One of my favorite songs when I was a little kid was uh, Dickie Goodman's Mr. Jaws, which was a a cut-in record, which for folks who may not be familiar with it, it was a phenomenon where you would take songs or clips and cut them together with, and usually it was an interview, and this was a person who was interviewing Jaws on the beach, and then you get to hear from Jaws' perspective by using these clips. So I'll, I'll be sure to put that in later. I mean, it was cheesy as hell. I liked it when I was probably eight years old. As an eight-year-old, this is funny freaking stuff, but it's stuff that then when you hear things like mashup albums years and years later, you're like, oh, okay, this kind of had its, its origin in these things where you're mixing multiple song forms together. And that Dickie Goodman song, I think it got to number four in the Billboard charts, which gives you some idea of, you know, the impact. I was looking through some stuff when I was making Inside Jaws and came across like the Spider-Man comic front cover where Spidey's swimming and the shark's coming up just like in the poster. The Rocky Horror Picture Show poster had the lips, didn't it? And it said underneath a different set of jaws. So everybody was trying to get in on this phenomenon by releasing, you know, merchandise. There was like a shark joke books, which had a kind of approximation of the poster on the front. Anything with a, with a shark in that kind of position, with the nose poking out and the jaws open. People, it was shorthand for, oh, that's, that's about that movie. 
and people would would mimic it and, and try and make the most of it. I can't remember if it was Airplane 1 or Airplane 2, where they even had a Jaws joke in the beginning of that, where it was the fin. I mean, and then there's Landshark on SNL. I mean, just, you couldn't get away from Jaws at the time. Yes? Mrs. Arlsberg? Who? Who is it? Flowers. Flowers for whom? Plumber, ma'am. I don't need a plumber. You're that clever shark, aren't you? Candy Graham. Candy Graham, my foot. You get out of here before I call the police. You're the shark and you know it. I'm only a dolphin, ma'am. A dolphin? Well, okay. Well, I always appreciated that the shark became called Jaws. <laughs> Here comes Jaws. Oh, for years, that's why I thought the shark was called. <laughs> and of course, there was that wonderful uh, Ben Cooper Halloween mask. Do yourselves a... a a favor and look up Ben Cooper Jaws Matt, Halloween. Um, you know he, he that was the company that put out the uh, plastic smocks, and you had the the uh, blow mold masks that were it would attach with a rubber band, and two holes in it. And they he managed to do Jaws, and it's exactly the, it's the poster Jaws. <laughs> oh yeah, you wear the poster and then unbelievable. Oh, those costumes were just amazing. Like, uh, I think one of my friends had the Chewbacca one where it was like the Chewbacca mask and then just a picture of Chewbacca on the front, like in case you can't yes. recognize yeah, it. Totally. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It was basically a, <laughs> yeah, a, a werewolf. The, the shark and the, uh, the alien mask, which was really neat. But, uh, I wish I still had all the universal monster ones I had, like the creature and stuff. They were. Good stuff. Sadly, we didn't get that stuff in the UK because Halloween here, up until very recently, was all about dressing up as like a witch or a ghoul or a skeleton. It wasn't about dress up as anything you like, which is, you know, how you do things in the States. The witch and the ghoul thing is the way it should be, isn't it? Yeah, kind of. I mean, it's kind of, you know, we're so Americanized here now that it's uh, it's gone down your route. But I have to say, I was in Austin, Texas a few years ago working and... I'd fallen asleep after work and I woke up kind of hazily stumbled out into the street and it was it was Halloween and (laughs) I hadn't remembered it was Halloween and some of the sights I saw there and I did in fact see both Chewbacca and Jaws or Bruce or the shark you know alongside people on hospital trolleys and people with axes through their head and whatever else people wanted to dress up as it's a it's a crazy time over there. I love hearing some of those early stories of Spielberg and like his version of the script because it went through several versions and obviously Gottlieb was the last typewriter that it went through. But Spielberg, he would have ideas that would then later come up in some of his other films. Like there's a a moment where um, he wanted Quint to be introduced by being in a movie theater and watching Moby Dick, the, I think it was the John Huston version, right? With Gregory Peck and just laughing hysterically, kind of like Max Cady and Cape Fear. But then the whole idea of this character in this movie theater, I was like, Oh, that's kind of like the general in 1941 where he's crying watching Dumbo. 
it was in the script and he wanted to do it. Gregory Peck wouldn't give the rights to uh, Moby Dick. He wasn't satisfied with that film and he just didn't want it to be made fun of any further. And, you know, the introduction we do get is perfect, isn't it? Because I think there's a deleted scene, isn't there, when we see the truck, Quint's truck pull up and we see his foot come out and we see the graphic of the shark on the side. But, you know, of course, the scene that we all know and love now is just him dragging his nails down that chalkboard and we all remember it because it's so iconic. Thank, thank goodness they went down that route in the end. But it's interesting what you say about Spielberg and some of his recycled ideas because he tried, like, the, the coat hanger as a weapon idea in 1941 and then recycled it in Raiders, I think. So he's got these ideas that he doesn't quite pull off or they don't actually get to film, or, or they do, but he has another go at it because he still thinks it's worthwhile. So I heard a story and finally got it confirmed that before Spielberg made Jaws, that there was a screening of Sugarland Express at uh, MoMA and that the um, guy who was in charge of that, I can't remember how he got on the subject, Charles Silver, sorry, and he sh- ended up showing a print of Howard Hawks's tiger shark to Steven Spielberg. And he's just like, well, I, I don't want to claim that I had anything to do with Jaws, but it might have a little bit of influence on Steven Spielberg and why Jaws was one of, you know, the next projects being shown. And I, I imagine that Spielberg might've already been talking about Jaws at that time. Otherwise, why are you just going to show him a print of tiger shark? But you know, it's interesting to, again, see how people's brains work and that maybe there's some DNA of this Howard Hawks film inside of Jaws. Hey, Jimmy, pull that wing in on your side. You've got to make it even. What's the matter with you? You're not so strong tonight. Tiger shark! Shark! Get that gun! Don't get me out of Hurry up or we lose our rest. I mean, is Edward G. Robinson and tying what we were talking about with um, Quint watching Moby Dick. I mean, there's a lot of Ahab inside of the Edward G. Robinson character. And I mean, it's not to the point of like him, you know, stabbing the shark as he's going down kind of thing. But of course, you know, Melville really had an influence as well on Jaws as far as the way that Quint becomes this Ahab character. He doesn't really start off as that, but once you hear his backstory, and then when he is there stabbing the shark, it's like, okay, yeah, I can see why you are doing this. And I can see that you have become Ahab. Like, I can see when you're smashing the radio and not allowing anybody for call to call for help. This has become your white whale now. This is your revenge on those sharks that took all of your buddies. Which is amazing because that wasn't in the original book. And it really makes that character tick. It, it's amazing to me that the movie so improved on all those elements. I was too young to read Jaws the book, even though I remember it being at so many supermarket checkouts or F&M and these kind of mm-hmm. stores. And yeah, I was kind of obsessed by that little lady on the front, you know, not wearing that many you clothes. Yeah. <laughs> so a few years ago, I was watching Jaws with my wife and she was just like, oh, I can't believe how much they changed this from the from the book. And I was like, okay, I have no idea what you're talking about. I've never read Benchley's book. And she started to lay out the whole idea of Hooper and... And Brody's wife having 
an affair. And I was just like, what the fuck are you talking about? That makes no sense whatsoever. <laughs> and then to find out about this whole like classism thing that's going on inside of the book that Brody's wife was this upper class person. And then Hooper comes from the same upper class and that Brody's wife had gone out with Hooper's brother. And then when he comes to the island, they start bumping uglies. It's just like, wow, I obviously that is gone completely from the movie. And also the, uh, the, the mafia played a big part in it. Yeah. They, were, they were leaning on Vaughn and the town people to uh, keep the beaches open. As I recall, it's enough without that, you know, just <laughs> there was a mob enforcer that killed Brody's cat in front of Sean Brody. <laughs> yeah. It was so horrible. <laughs> that is awful. Well, that line that um, Spielberg says to Gottlieb, here, take this and eviscerate it, you know, just like, just pull the guts out of it and re- reconfigure it into something that will work on screen. Yeah, and I remember when I read it after having seen the movie, you know, when it ends with the, the shark just get dying from all its wounds. I'm like, what? <laughs> it just, that's it? <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, it's like, wow, they really did a good job with that movie. Well, and that eventually got kind of bent out of shape about the whole exploding air tank. And I was just like, yeah, you well, did. yeah, how else are you going to end it? I mean, I'm sure on Mythbusters, they probably disproved that that would work, but I don't care. Sadly, they did, but I believe it. Time to put the exploding scuba tank myth under the gun. Well, and I like, too, that is such a nice little setup for that moment. That whole thing when, when Hooper goes a little nuts, where he's just like, oh, I'll be careful with that. That's compressed air. What? Damn it, Martin. This is compressed air. Well, what the hell kind of a knot was that? You pull the wrong one. You screw around with these tanks and they're going to blow up. Yeah, that's real fine, expensive gear you brought out here, Mr. Hooper. But I don't know what that bastard shark's going to do with it. Might eat it, I suppose. Seen one eat a rocking chair one time. Even when uh, Brody's looking through the, the shark books, they, they get that shot of the shark with a tank in its mouth. It's mm. uh, yeah, it's, it's it's foreshadowed all through it. It's great, and it's not heavy-handed, is it? That it doesn't even even when Hooper says that line, you don't feel like ah, oh, that's going to come up later. It's just kind of because it's in the moment. There's that immediacy to it. You just kind of buy that. Oh God, they're in a perilous situation, and then when it does come up, you might even not make that connection consciously, but it's there subconsciously. And let's face it, blowing a shark up. When I was when I first saw it, age seven or whatever I was, I thought that was the coolest thing I've ever seen. <laughs> just all those chunks that are flying through the air, and I love all the seagulls at the end that are just eating the bits of jaws. And don't forget mm-hmm. all the other sharks that would be attracted. But that tiger shark that came all the way up from uh, Louisiana—that's probably one of my favorite lines in the movie, which is really stupid. What kind? What kind of shark? It's a tiger shark. A what? <laughs> How about I shove the freaking head there and you tell me it's not a man either? <laughs> so much good dialogue in that film. It's That's one thing that really struck me about um, watching it so many times, but watching it kind of anew when I was making Inside Jaws is that for a blockbuster, there's a lot of dialogue in there. It's really dialogue heavy. We see is we see blockbuster as shorthand for action movie with pretty much nothing but action, but this is a very different kind of blockbuster. It's... um. It would be considered like an art movie today, I think, you know, considering there's so many long shots and just sit down talking and just letting stuff play out, which is, you know, it makes me sound old, but I like that kind of stuff. 
it feels like it's a very improv movie to me. Um, you know, the background characters are my favorite bits in it. Everybody from the the harbor master to the uh, the estuary guy, they're all they're all great. I'm so glad they cut the scenes of, and I feel bad for saying this, but I, I'm glad they cut the scenes of Quint's little helper guy because he's so great just as this silent little helper dude. And I love too that he just like. We miss the scene where he quits, but I'm okay with that. I'm really okay that he just disappears in the movie, and then it's, you know, it, it's Quint, it's Hooper, and it's Brody out on the water. What happened to the little guy? I don't care. Well, he kind of says, doesn't he, I, I'll do this alone. I don't need a crew or whatever the line is. And you see his helper there just kind of stood up against by the door. Um, yeah, with the dog, and he kind of, he's got his head down and... Maybe, you know, that's the moment where he realizes he's out of a job and therefore the scene, the terribly acted scene where he says, I quit, um, wasn't necessary. Well, the I guy guess. wasn't an actor. He was like a, a fish, fish, fisherman, I think, on the, mm-hmm. on the island. Herschel West. Don't ask me why I know that. And that guy who ended up, uh, Craig Kingsbury, who played Ben Gardner, who ended up lending so much of his real life dialogue to Quint, that whole thing about going down and fishing for bluegills or Tommyknockers or whatever it is, that was him just saying that in real life. And then when you get those moments of him talking about the boats and, you know, they'll be sorry their fathers ever met their mothers. I wish, I wish their fathers <laughs> never met their mothers. They start digging their bottoms out on those rocks, boy. <laughs> but it's the kind of stuff that you kind of hear people like that say in, in life. You know, I work in the TV industry and there are people in their let's say in the later part of their career that are you know espousing these same kind of lines you know oh, i wouldn't be doing that if i were you you know uh, they've seen it all they've been there and that's what that character does it's it's um it's just fantastic and i think you know the, the idea that they cast a doctor to be the doctor and they cast a, a fisherman to be a fisherman and because then immediately you've got that kind of vernacular there ready to go you know you don't have to it kind of writes itself i guess Speaking of Ben Gardner, nobody ever talks about the fact that when he goes out to hunt the shark, he's got a mate on the boat with him. We never know what becomes of him. I guess the shark mm, That shark will swallow you whole. There you go. Because that scene was originally filmed in daylight, wasn't it, with, um, with Gottlieb falling in. I think there's an outtake of him falling in, and then they decided to do the reshoot at night um, on the back lot pond, I think, wasn't it, in... Uh with the boat there. Yeah, so maybe maybe in that scene we did find out what happened to his mate or there was a piece of dialogue but soon got forgotten when they decided to change it to a night scene. But I think, you know, it works a lot better as well because that night scene you are kind of like, oh my goodness, can it is absolutely terrifying. There's so so much of this movie that still kind of has my stomach turning, you know, that initial moment uh, you know, with the kid getting bitten in half and the Chrissy stuff right at the beginning, all of that stuff, it still makes the kind of the hair stand up on, on, on my back and on the back of my neck. And it's, it's still powerful today. And that scene in the dark with just a searchlight that can barely see like two meters in front of them. No, thank you. <laughs> Mike, you were saying you see it, you see it on the big screen as often as you can. And it was a tradition for me and my sister to see it every summer. There's a theater to play. Of course, this year it didn't happen, but you know, every year that movie sells out and it plays like a brand new movie, even though people know it inside and out. It's just fantastic filmmaking. Well, there's something about the big screen, isn't there? You know, you, 
you may know it on VHS or DVD or Blu-ray, but you see it on a big screen and you really see the eyes of the characters and you see so much more detail and somehow just being in that dark setting with no distractions, you, you notice so much more about the movie. I mean, films like this that I've now seen hundreds of times and Empire and Raiders, if I see them on the big screen, I notice something new every time just because of this, the size of that format and that situation you're in. There's some, there's a real magic. I mean, it's a bit of a cliche, but there is a magic about, you know, the lights going down and not being able to do anything or go anywhere or talk, go on your phone if you're a decent human being. No, I mean, I took my parents to see Jaws when it was re-released. When would it have been? Like 10 or 15 years ago now. And my mum just sat there kind of, you know, holding onto my arm. And I, I said at the end of the movie, I said, what, what was that about? You're doing that from like, five minutes in she said all I remember is that bit where that guy's head falls out of the boat and his eyes hanging out she's I knew it was coming but I didn't know when I mean Spielberg love him or hate him and I don't know why anybody would hate him he knows how to make films and he surrounds himself with really good technicians I mean we talked a little bit about Werner Fields just being such an amazing editor and knowing exactly where to make these cuts and he it's just, he plays with you. And I love hearing those stories of how he was trying to get the last little bit of jump out of people or the whole thing about chumming the water and how he wanted that to be a laugh that turned into a scream. And I just love that he cares about things so much that he's there like milking every ounce of things. You know, you talked about shooting stuff on the back lot. They also shot stuff in, in, the, pool. Pool. in, the, pool. in the pool. They shot stuff on one guy's driveway i mean just trying to like get those last inserts and get everything just tightened up like a just a perfect drum i read um the jaws log back uh, recently and gottlieb talks about when the shark wasn't working spielberg would just have these ideas of a little insert here and a little insert there that they thought oh, we're probably never going to use them but spielberg knew you know that he had to kind of a, make the most of his time. And also, given that the shark wasn't working for, you know, this large expanse of time, he had to really go through this movie in his head and kind of edit it in his mind. And he knew that those inserts would make all the difference. Those little pickup shots, you know, of hands moving or, you know, feet slipping off the side of the boat. Or there's even that shot in the TV version where instead of seeing uh, Hooper gesturing rudely to Quinn, we see like another close-up of the, the tackle box and he just kind of lifts lifts up a hook and moves it as if to say, ah, oh, this is the hook I need. You know, all those little all those little inserts there really do really do play into it. And yeah, he's a master, an absolute master. Everybody's talked about the use of the barrels instead of the shark, which is still to me one of the most clever things, just to use something as a stand-in for something else and never seeing you know, just seeing the shark when we see the shark is the perfect thing. You know, the chum line when we get to see the shark. But then the rest of that when we are seeing the barrels. And when they have the lights on the barrels and you can see the light from underneath the water. That is wonderful. And that's, again, one of those things where, yeah, you can see it when you're watching this on Blu-ray or DVD, but seeing that in the theater, wow. Talking about like those details of like Hooper's boat shoes and yeah, how they slip off the side or just like all those little moments, those little extra things. I mean, we, you can get so nitty gritty. You know, you already brought up the idea of, um, Murray Hamilton's jacket and the pinstripes and the anchors. I mean, 
just we can focus you could do an entire thing just about the costumes of jaws and we haven't even talked about the music. I mean, that was one of the things that I, I always loved was when they ran a rough cut of this and studio execs were like, yeah, it was all right. And then when they ran it again with the music, it's just like, okay, yeah, John Williams' score for this. I mean, th- that two note uh, motif for Jaws. I mean, how many times has that been used in movies? It's got to be the most well-known piece of cinematic music, doesn't it? And every time you see Jaws in a theater, as soon as you hear it, start everybody laughs i'm Mm -hmm. not quite sure why whether they're nervous or what and i got to see jaws in concert a couple years ago in san francisco where they showed the movie with a live orchestra talk about a treat but you know as soon as they play those notes everybody breaks up john williams as far as i'm concerned you know gave the soul to jaws and star wars that they needed um Mm -hmm. yeah i was you know i was playing uh fortnite with my uh, teenage daughters the other night and one of my daughters fell in the water she went oh no i can hear the shark music and and i said is it the jaws music she went yeah yeah that's what it is and it's just this it's just become this shorthand we know exactly what that means <laughs> there's absolutely no doubt in our minds of what that refers to Even, my kids have never seen the film but they know they know about it you know it's just part of the culture and it's just passed down and you know they're gonna they will watch jaws at some point I'll make them, you know, they're my, my, my children, they have to. It's interesting because they see sort of my culture kind of upside down, you know, they get access to it through cartoons or games and, oh, that's what they were doing in the Barbie movie when she lost her necklace under that door that was closing. I'm like, yeah, that's Indiana Jones. Yeah, yeah. But it, it, you're right, though, it is, it's such an amazing score. And there are some really jolly moments in it, in that score and the, the stuff of everybody arriving on the beach and there's that opt- great optimism kind of going on that everyone's going to have a, a nice time or are they you know and oh it's, it's fantastic I was lucky enough to see John Williams twice live with the London Symphony Orchestra in, in London in the 90s and when he played Jaws he played like a suite of Jaws stuff I mean th- there was a standing ovation everybody there had been affected by that movie because of that music um, along with you know Stephen's direction and everything else but it's that that film without that music you can't even imagine it. It's, they're inseparable. I will totally cop to when I was in film school, I so stole moments from Jaws. Like I was doing a a shot of a guy sitting in a car and it was rainy and he had his wipers on. So every time the wipers would pass by, I would make that cut and I would do closer, closer, closer. And that scene on the beach is just, oh, magnificent i love the way that that's put together i love those cuts and then of course the zoom in pull out where we have martin just being affected so much and i think that's really one of those moments where he has an internal change you know we talked about how he's kind of a milquetoast protagonist at first but then he has that moment and it's just like oh fuck things just got real and again though the music matching that that dolly zoom you know, that's a proper, I mean, I'm just talking about it now. I can feel my skin kind of tingling because it is just one of those moments that, that that's an, you know, that reaction is unavoidable. And I was, you know, watching it again the other night, that moment when they realize their son's in the pond and he's, he's walking through the crowd. And just as he gets further and further from the camera and the, the image becomes more kind of blurry because he's running between people and then he's running and then he's sprinting and the music's building. It's just, um, it's just pure textbook stuff. It's so good. 
somebody who I don't think gets enough credit is Lorraine Gary, who just does such a wonderful job in one of the most thankless roles as Ellen Brody. Like she doesn't even get to be in the second half of the movie. We don't even get to hear her voice on the radio, but just that she is such a, a, a great person for Martin to bounce off of. And I love when she's there around that table, like she and Hooper and Brody together at that table is such a, a wonderful moment. It's almost as good as Brody and his son, where they're doing the matching of the movements. And that's kind of like we were talking about, like that wouldn't necessarily be in a blockbuster these days, like that moment, such a little moment, but really just so powerful, completely wordless. You know, we do talk about how wonderful the dialogue is, but that scene and then her her looking at her husband and her boy doing that. Oh, it's so great. That moment she, she kind of just pulls the mug of tea or whatever. She's got closer to her chest as she sees it and kind of tilts her head. And you know, she's just like, oh, she's just kind of grabbing her heart because I mean, I watched that scene again this morning, actually, because I was talking to my wife about some of the moments in Jaws in preparation for this podcast. And it's so good. It has me welling up every single time. It's the music. It's the, we all, you know, if, if, if you've got kids, you kind of know that sometimes you do just need that kind of, you need a hug. You need a kiss. <laughs> Why? I just need it. <laughs> you know, I love the introduction of the two of them as well. Uh, when the film starts and he's up before the alarm, you know, she's, he's sat on the end of the bed ready to go to work and they've just got this fantastic banter between them and you get a sense of their relationship being strong immediately but you also get this sense that there's a little bit of friction there about you know do they really want to be there as a family is this going to work out but it's never explicitly laid out that's what I like about it the dialogue really does it is written so well that it just kind of informs us with these little droplets you know there's no big wave of information coming in at any point and I think they feel like a real couple that's the that's the best thing about it Especially when it's that whole, it's okay with her if Michael's out on the boat, but Brody's kind of upset about it. And then when she looks down and sees that shark <laughs> picture and then suddenly changes her tune, I love that. And again, that's just a quick edit, that performance, just all of that just working so well to have this whole movie is just made up of all of these little moments that just fit perfectly together like a puzzle. And, you know, you mentioned the dialogue and just this movie is so quotable. This movie, you know, if I go to a movie theater and see this, I have to consciously not quote the movie as I'm watching it because it is so much fun to do. And, and everybody, it's not just Quint's lines. I mean, Hooper's got amazing lines. Brody's got amazing, everybody in here. And, you know, we mentioned Ben Gardner and the what? Like the, all of those guys have such wonderful dialogue. And then you have those non-dialogue scenes like Brody and his son or like Mrs. Kittner coming up and slapping Brody. Oh my God. That's another one that just gives me chills. Oh, just going back to Ellen Brody, one thing that struck me when I was watching it um, last night and this morning was that line where she says, do you want to get drunk and fool around? Because it kind of informs you immediately that they, it's almost like, yeah, as if we could do that now, our, our current situation is a lot more complicated. Remember when we could just do that and we were young and free and, and it reminds you that they've been together for a while and, or informs you that they've been together for a while and they've still got this fun relationship, but they're kind of aware of the 
the complications of grown-up life as well. So much of that dialogue is so informative as to the characters. My husband tells me you're in sharks. We have to talk about, too, the cinematography and just how beautiful this film looks, how this is another thing, talking about film school, they talked so much about the way that the camera is used, especially in the orca scenes, especially in the second half of the film when they're out there. And if we were to use a lockdown camera, we would probably get seasick. But instead, having Bill Butler out there handheld, but locking his knees and, and moving with the motion of the boat so you don't get sick, so people stay in the frame the right way, just absolutely wonderful stuff and then the use of the water box this box where you put the camera in and there's the water in front of it so you're kind of there at sea level with the camera super smart and super well done so good and the audio the way that the audio when it goes underwater it goes out like you're underwater it's genius Mm -hmm. yeah i mean watching that with headphones on as well now that mix that they've done for this new re-release is fantastic but you know you said about michael chapman that um it was the cameraman uh, you know for bill butler and he said it was just a joy to get back to sort of plain and simple operating he had this handheld camera it weighed i think like 34 35 pounds or something so it's still pretty heavy but because he had no seasickness, he never suffered from seasickness. He said a lot of the crew and the cast did, but he didn't. He said, I'll hold it. I'll just hold it. It's fine. You know, I think Spielberg said it was like the, the most expensive handheld movie ever made. Um, and those, those, that idea about the box, you know, there's, there's two types of rig they use. So they've got like a Panavision spray deflector, which spins at high speed to get the water off it. We actually have them on, uh, helicopter cameras. Now I work on Formula One motor racing and our helicopter cameraman, uh, a Belgian guy called Levin has that same mechanism. It spins the water off it. So you still get a, an image, but then there are those scenes, like you say, with the box where you do want the water lapping against the lens to bring. And again, as Chris said, with the sound combination of that and the sound, you're there in the water with them, you know, and so you've got this combination of shots just kind of gliding through the water or you've got these shots where you're just seeing just below and just above and it's lapping towards you and that box you know was a great addition uh, i think it was bill butler that came up with it as you say but what what, an, what a moment that was to be able to kind of de- delineate between the two states in and out of the water and then somewhere in between as well right and to put us in the water then to put us in jeopardy you know it, it, mm-hmm. it's like we could be above water the entire time if we wanted to or below water but to have us there at that level and it's just like oh shit we're in the water with this camera this is our pov now and or maybe it's jaws's pov and it's just like oh fuck you know this is a dangerous situation i i still have that fear now you know that kind of I can see everything above the water, but I can't see what's below. Do you know, years ago, I was with my brother-in-law and my sister and my then girlfriend. We were in Kauai and we went out on some boards, me and my brother-in-law, Ben, and we were just paddling around. And he was a kind of accomplished surfer and I tried it a couple of times. And we were just out there having a chat. And he said, don't look down. And he said, look at me, look at me. And I could feel this thing brushing past my leg. And it, and it went on for what felt like 20 seconds, but probably was like five or six or something. Uh, And to this day, he still never told me what it was, but I can only assume it was maybe a shark or just a very, very big fish. But he, he knows that I was, you know, kind of taking a leap going out there in deep water, having this kind of, you know, inbuilt fear, thanks to Jaws. But to the, to this day, it still kind of freaks me out. I think, 
you know, one thing that really, along with Jaws, was a book I had as a kid that said about sharks. Of uh, They think sharks have been on Earth for like 200 million years or something. And you just go, as a kid, you're like, wow, this thing, this thing, I'm in, I'm in this thing's playground, you know, get me out of the water. Well, yeah, they almost shot this down in, what, Bermuda or something? Or, or maybe somewhere in the Caribbean. They were talking about shooting it someplace where the water was really clear. And I'm like, no, no, you don't want to shoot this where the water is clear. You want that visibility of maybe a foot underwater, like when we do see Jaws passing by under the water. And that's all you can see, you know, and, and, and otherwise you're looking at a black mirror and you cannot see anything else. And it just makes for this, where is it? It could be underneath me. It could be right to the, you know, to, next to me. It could be just about to brush up against my leg. You have no idea. And yeah, that is so perfect that it is, you know, it's, it's like a monster coming out of the dark because it literally is a monster coming out of the dark sea. We have to talk about the Indi- Indianapolis speech because that moment is one of those moments in film that I just think fires on all cylinders again. And that is one of those monologues in a movie that doesn't feel gratuitous because there are times where you get like, Oh, okay, here you go. Here's the big speech. It just works in so perfectly. And again, I was talking about how Spielberg turned a laugh into a scream. We've got the setup for the Indianapolis speech is terrific that we are talking about, you know, Mary Ellen Moffat breaking Hooper's heart. We are drinking to each other's legs and just that Brody doesn't know what the Indianapolis is. And when Hooper hears that his face changes, everything changes, everyone's demeanor changes. And then we get the speech. Oh my God. I watched it again uh, this morning and it, it never fails to kind of hit me that scene. That delivery is amazing. And as you say, Richard Dreyfus's reaction when it kind of sinks in and he's breathing deeply, he's just been laughing, but he's now trying to catch his breath because he, he can't believe that he's just potentially offended him or like, Oh my goodness, you were, you were there. Um, do you know, I, I put it on Twitter earlier about exactly what I've just said. And a, a friend of mine who's an actor, he's a, an actor in the West End. He was in Hamilton in the UK. He said, that he's watched this scene like dozens of times and each time he sees it, he finds out something new about acting. So he says here, I noticed last time I watched, he doesn't blink at all during the scene until he has that line. Sometimes the shark go away. Sometimes he wouldn't go away. Then he blinks twice. And in those two tiny blinks, he's back in the water and you feel the horrors of the whole experience. Amazing. It's so good. It's so good. I buy it every time. Even though I know the the words, you know, because I've watched it so many times, I buy it every single time. And I don't know if these days they would do a flashback and suddenly we would be there with him in the shit, you know. <laughs> oh, boy. But oh boy. this is the thing. I talk so often on the show about, you know, show, don't tell, show, don't tell. But in this case, it is completely the opposite. I just need to look at Robert Shaw's face to hear the words, to hear the pauses, to not hear the music, to hear the water. Everything is there just so wonderfully. You can see Herb Robinson. You can see it in your head, which is worse than seeing it in real life. Worse than seeing it on film, for That's sure. Right. Mm-hmm. Definitely. 
yeah, you can almost hear the screams of the men coming through Quint's voice. God, it is perfect. I love the story behind it as well, you know, that it was written by Gottlieb and then Sackler and then Milius and then Shaw, and it just went through all these different phases and perfect, just comes out absolutely perfect in the end. I don't know, actually, I don't know, Chris, maybe you know, was there anything ever cut from that scene? From that I'm aware of. I, I, like you mm. said, they all had a go at it, and I think it was just finally just uh, went through Shaw, and he, and he knocked mm. it out of the park. I think he had to do it two days because yeah. Uh, yeah, he was a little bit into the drinking, but uh, it worked. Yeah, didn't they take two takes of that and cut them together so you can see if his eyes are glassy, it's one take? That's right. You can That's help. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right, we're going to take a break and play a pair of interviews. First up, we'll hear from screenwriter Carl Gottlieb, and after that is author John LeMay, who wrote Jaws Unmade. We'll be back with both of those right after these brief messages. What if you owned your own drive-in? An open-air theater outside of time and space. You could show anything you want. You could pair together any movies you want. Regardless of genre. Regardless of when they were made. Regardless of quality. If you could own such a theater. If you could do whatever you wanted. You certainly wouldn't do it like this. It's like if we don't use it, you'll be like wasting my precious f***ing fluids. <laughs> my precious creative juices. Oh my god, I had to, I had to read two sentences. <laughs> Over and over. Who is this guy think he is? Kubrick? Fincher? <laughs> Who's this f-ing guy? Are you ready for me to read this, Mr. Hitchcock? <laughs> yeah. Is the bird going to sh- on my shoulder in this scene, too? He's a plastic bird. He doesn't even make sh- on his own. <laughs> the All Night Drive-In Picture Show. Available now at a podcatcher near you. Hi there, Faithful Projection Booth listener, Chris Stashew here. If you're looking for even more deep-dive film discussion, both old and new, on and off the cinematic beaten path, check out the Culture Cast. Every episode, I'm joined by a different guest as we traverse the cinema landscape, talking about not only our monthly theme, but also some of the year's biggest films. I'm even joined by the host of the Projection Booth, the one and only Mike White. So if you want to listen to even more conversations on film, head on over to CultureCast.com or find it on all podcasts Catchers, both Android and iOS. It's not easy having a good time, and it's not cheap either. Every week, the projection booth brings you a new show, possibly even two, focusing on all genres of cinema. If you've sat through the seven hour Conan episode, the six-hour Star Wars episode, or even the hour-long Superb Man episode, you know that Mike and his co-host put forth a lot of work into researching the movies, tracking down the interview subjects, and putting together one of the best podcasts on the internet. Now, I'm asking you if you can repay all that hard work 
by giving back to the projection booth. The show has a Patreon fundraiser at Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash projection booth. You can donate as little as a dollar a month. That's $12 a year. At least 50 great shows and two terrible ones. That's the price of two matinee tickets. Now, isn't the projection booth worth it? Once again, that's patreon.com slash projection booth. Donate today. It's the right thing to do. I was very curious about your work with the committee and how you got into that. And then also, I've never been able to find the committee movie that you guys put together. I believe it's on YouTube. It's called A Session with the Committee. I know I know there are excerpts from it on YouTube, but I'm pretty sure the whole the whole movie is is out there somewhere. I can't guide you to it, but I, I know it you know, I'm pretty sure it exists. It's like well it's like everything else. You know, once it once it exists and somebody has, you know, posted it or circulated, it lives forever in the cyberspace. How did you get involved with them? We have to flash back 60 years. I'm in the Army in Fort Leonard Wood, Missouri, and my college friend and New York roommate is Larry Hankin. I'm stationed at Fort Leonard Wood, Missouri, and one day I pick up the St. Louis Post-Dispatch, and I see that Larry Hankin is appearing at the Compass Theater in St. Louis on Gaslight Square. So I said, oh boy, that's just 100 miles down the road. I can get there on a weekend pass. So I go see Larry, and Compass Theater was uh, one of the original improvisational groups in the world. I think it was Compass Theater at the University of Chicago, and that morphed into Second City and the premise. The first four improvisational theaters uh, groups in, in, in the world were Second City, Compass, the premise, and the committee, as, as far as I know. So Larry went from the Compass Players and I would hang, go out in St. Louis, and we'd hang out, and I watched improv work. And in those days, I was a, a techie. I was a stage manager and a lighting designer and a part-time performer. So the show closed, and Larry was hired up at Second City in Chicago. And he went there, and I went back to the Army. And then uh, Alan Meyerson hired Larry and Hamilton Camp out of Chicago to go to San Francisco and start this new theater group called The Committee. They had raised the money in New York. They had put together uh, some San Francisco backers, and they went to they rented the theater and they put together a company that included Larry. So um, I stayed in touch, and of course, when I had a, a leave, I think I had five or ten day leave because I had been a finalist in the All Army Entertainment Contest as a performer. So I got some time off, and I went out to San Francisco to visit with Hankin, and I met the committee and. You know, hung out and I helped them stage. I stage managed a road trip that they took, and and they did not have a stage manager. They, actors were running their own lights. They offered me a job as stage manager when I got out of the army. So when I got out of the army, I packed up all my stuff in New York. I went to San Francisco, and I went to work as a stage manager at the committee. Uh, I performed in a couple of sketches in my role as stage manager. You know, I would come out and you know do funny stuff occasionally, you know, tidying up after the actors or whatever. 
But anyway, I was a member of the company. There's uh, you know six six or I think six or seven actors and and uh, a musician. You know your classic improv thing. The theater was a nice three hundred seat theater in North Beach in San Francisco, and the show was a huge hit. It was crowded almost all the time, except you know January and February, the, the dead months. But it was doing so well that uh, a Broadway producer came and took the committee to Broadway. And they, they didn't want to close the theater, so they hired an interim company, and I was hired. I was promoted from stage manager to director of the interim company because I, you know, I could do that. So I directed the, I directed it for a while. Then, then the committee came back from Broadway. The committee ex- was doing so well, they bought a second theater with the intention of, of producing improvised plays, and they, they hired a new company for the original, the first theater where I had been stager and part-time performer. And Myerson was coming to New York to audition New York actors for the company. And because I was in New York and had an office and everything, I was able to set up, you know, the rehearsal hall and put the ad and the trades and, you know, kind of the audition event, which I did. And during the course of the audition, because there's no an audition for an improv theater, you know, you don't come in with a monologue. You have to actually play theater games and improvise. I was playing theater games and improvising with the uh, with the candidates, and you know I was having a, a, a you know a really good time. So I said to Alan, I said, you know, I've done, I've been a stage manager, I've been a director, I've been you know, I've you know helped in the box office, I've pushed furniture around. I'd like to come back as an actor. So he said, well, Peter Bonners is the director of the new company. It's okay with Peter. It's okay with me, and it was okay with Peter. So I came back. And I was hired as an actor. So in 66, I once again packed all my belongings and my motorcycle uh, in a trailer and drove to San Francisco and joined me as an actor uh, with Howard Hessman, Mel Stewart, Nancy Fish, and Lee French, and a guy named Stan Wagner, and Morgan Upton, Chris Ross. And we opened to ecstatic reviews in 66. So you know, we, we nailed it. And I was, and then I and I had a, a cool little apartment in North Beach, uh, across the street from Jubilee Square. Bicycle to or motorcycle to work, uh, and I had a, a great time. And in '68, that was those two years of San Francisco in the committee, being in a hit show in North Beach during the Summer of Love and the Free Speech Movement at Berkeley. I mean, it was you know, San Francisco from '66 to '68 was ground zero for the cultural revolution. So, you know, when we were a part of that because we were politically conscious theater, we were deliberately progressive and outspoken in our politics. Uh, the whole reason for the committee's existence was the Second City tended to shy away from political humor and Alan Meyerson embraced it. So that was our emphasis from the beginning. Anyway, we were doing real well and so well that they, we were offered a theater in Los Angeles if we would bring the show there. So in 68, the company moved to Los Angeles. We were at a place called the Tiffany Theater on the Sunset Strip, right on Sunset in La Cienega. Three or four of the actors rented a house together just up the block on Cloud. And we had a you know, fabulous run in, in, uh, in L.A. And, and during that time, of course, because we were in L.A., Lots of people stopped by to see us, you know, influential you know, casting directors. And I got hired to do the movie, the feature of MASH. I did, I did, you know, I did some television work. And then I got offered 
the Glenn Campbell show and the and the Smothers Brothers show as a as a writer because they had seen me. And when you're improvising, it's kind of assumed that you you're kind of writing on your feet. You're writing as you go. So so if you say it on stage, chances are you created it. And you know, I, I had a body of work, and I was good at what I did. So I got hired to do variety television, and I had to leave the committee behind and starting for big money in television. And on that first show that I got hired on, the Smothers Brothers had also hired a bunch of other new young writers, including Steve. This was all of our first job. Steve Martin, Rob, Steve Martin, Rob Reiner, Bob Einstein, John Hartford, a guy named Paul Wayne. I know I'm leaving some people out. Anyway, it was a, it was a wonderful company of writers. We started on the Gimble Summer Show and then uh, transitioned to the Smothers Brothers last season on CBS and we won an Emmy. And, you know, from there, I never looked back. You know, I just one one thing led to another. There's one credit on your resume that I've always been curious about, the uh, celebration at Big Sur. Oh, during that period, I was uh, engaged to a woman who later I would marry. Somebody suggested, I don't know how, but somebody suggested that uh, we help put together funding to, to film this folk festival that was taking place in Big Sur. So, you know, I, I knew people in the production community. I knew, you know, underground filmmakers and people who had cameras and tape record, you know, Niagara tape, you know, professional great equipment. So I put together, a, and, and it was being done for Joan Baez's charity, the Institute for Study of Nonviolence. My wife and I thought it was a good idea, and we... we uh, Put together a crew, and we we filmed the event, which was on a weekend in September of 1969, I think. When it was same, it was like three weeks after Woodstock. It was you know right in that same period. And uh, as a matter of fact, uh, our uh, celebration has some of the same uh, same performers as uh, Woodstock. You know, Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young, Joan Baez, Mitchell, John Sebastian. Uh, they were all there for the uh, music festival and we filmed them. We, we got it on film and it took a long time to edit. We ran, you know, we ran a bay. I had to find a buyer. We had our own money tied up in it. Uh, but eventually uh, we found an angel investor who bought it and sold, turned around and sold the Fox as a feature for release. And everybody made money, including the Institute for the Study of Nonviolence. And, uh, you know, I produced it and my wife was associate producer and, uh, the cameraman we made and the cameraman and his wife were, were a cinematographer editor team. So we gave them, you know, a film by credit for which they were very grateful and a small, a small share of the profits if we ever made any. And that's how that movie got made. And it took a year to, to get out. In the meantime, Woodstock, which had been properly recorded with, you know, 16 track recorders, they, you know, they. They they got out first, but when our movie came out, you can see the performers. You know, John John Sebastian's wearing his tie dye outfit. The Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young are wearing the exact same stage outfits they wore at Woodstock two weeks earlier. Um, you know, Joni Mitchell is did not go to Woodstock, but she wrote the song Woodstock and performed it for the first time at the festival. So you know, it, it was a, a great little milestone. Is that where you met David Crosby? No, I knew Crosby when I was when I was in the committee in San Francisco the first time as a stage manager. The Birds were in a house band up the street at the Go Go uh, at a Go Go bar called the Peppermint Tree, <clears throat> and uh, you know they, it wasn't a good fit. But you know there they were, 
and we, you know, we were, they liked what we did. I like, no, I like what they did. So we started hanging out and that's how I met Crosby. And we've been friends ever since the winter of 64, I guess. One of my oldest friends of us. I wanted to ask you, you mentioned uh, working on MASH, and I was very curious your experience with that, because I've, I've spoken with some people that have worked with Robert Altman. The stories always come back to him just giving acts freedom, and I was curious how your experience was. Uh, Ring Larner Jr. wanted to take his name off the script, because we had changed it. So we, we encouraged us to improvise. The, if the improvisation killed some storylines, he didn't care. You know, He just let the storyline disappear. Um, but Ring Lardner Jr., who wrote actually wrote a screenplay, uh, was so you know embarrassed by what we were doing and the liberties that you know Donald Sutherland and Tom Skerritt and Elliot Gould were taking with the script and the, the liberties that Altman encouraged the cast to take. He wanted to take his name off the script. He was nominated for an Academy Award, and Bing, he was right there. <laughs> so you know, yeah, actors love to work with Altman because he he really gives you free reign but and but i it's interesting one contrasting viewpoint that says you know altman doesn't love actors he hates them and the way you can tell is he never pays them because when you're on film you work for scale no matter who you are he never pays his actors and he never allows them a complete performance he's always cutting away you know his, his style doesn't permit a character to grow and develop that arc of the, of, the, of the film. You get vignettes and you get great character stuff, but you never get, you know, a character having a beginning, middle, and end. So that's that's the downside of working Altman film. But on the plus side, there's so many actors who love working with him and will drop everything. And he was like Woody Allen before Woody Allen. Actors just enjoyed the freedom. And then he developed a stock company of players that he used in multiple films, you know, Shelley Duvall and Bud Court and Corey Fisher and some others. I, he directed Long Goodbye, Long Goodbye, but I was cut out of it pretty much. I mean, I'm still visible. You can see me. I play Sterling Hayden's agent at a cocktail party on the beach, but it was a great experience working with all. And then he and his wife became friends with me and my wife and the four of us. If we were in London, we'd go out to Chinese dinner together and hang out. And his wife's daughter was part of a commune that lived uh, in a couple of three houses across the street where my wife and I lived. So, you know, I would see Catherine Altman when she visited her daughter and the commune was kind of a, you know, a, a cult, cult worshiping group, but we just stayed connected over the years, you know, and, and always talked and always, always kept up. Now, I know you were in things like Something Evil and Savage, which were directed by Steven Spielberg, but I'm curious when you first met him. In 68, when we opened at the uh, committee in, in Los Angeles, we were approached by you know all the agencies because we were, we were hit. It was amazing. We opened in 68. We got rave reviews in L.A. across the board. We got the, the L.A. Times and the Herald Examiner, which took care of the you know, general consumer press. We got... Daily Variety, Weekly Variety, and Hollywood, which was the trade press. And we got the L.A. Free Press and the Avatar, which were the two hippie underground papers. They all, for, you know, for different reasons, but they all loved the show. So we were, we were you know, pretty spectacular hit. An enterprising agent at, I think it was CAA at the time, or 
CMA, Creative Management. Mike Medavoy was an agent in those days before he became a studio head. And Mike Medavoy signed a lot of really interesting new talent that year. Medavoy's class of 68, because he ran over, he went around, he had, like, like all great agents, he had a great eye for talent. So he signed Spielberg uh, on the basis of his uh, universal contract. Uh, he signed Carol Eastman, who wrote five easy pieces. He wrote, he signed Michelangelo Antonioni. He signed uh, John Milius. He signed, there's a, a pretty sterling bunch of people. Uh, and and Mike believed in synergy. He, he was one of the first guys. He was like the ancestor of packaging. He was the first guy who said, you know, uh, we can put, but I can put a couple of my clients together and, you know, we can, we can do stuff. So he suggested that I kind of hang out with Spielberg. Uh, and Spielberg was the new kid in town. He had just got his first contract, his first job at Universal from say Scheinberg. And he was, uh, and he was, you know, a new kid from Phoenix and we got on well. We, you know, we wrote ideas together. We pitched them out to the studios. We could not sell a script because Mike's stipulation was that if we sold one of our ideas, I would write the screenplay and Steve would act, and nobody would commit to Stephen as a director. I just found uh, one of the stories that we wrote in January of seven of uh, seventy four. I guess six months before our Jaws collaboration. A, a great little story idea, two pager. I found it in my files. It's still good. It's still a good story. I got to, these days. I got to show it to Stephen. So that's how we got. That's how we met. And because I had been in Hollywood for a while, and I had uh, I had won an Emmy, and I was you know I was kind of established, and he was like the new kid in town. We would work together and hang out together. And I had a house that was kind of a kind of a salon where you know all kinds of writers and musicians and filmmakers would hang out because it was on Gardner Street, like halfway between Laurel Canyon and Hollywood. So every, everybody who was lived in the canyon and lived, uh, you know, or was staying on the Sunset Strip would pass by our house and stop in for a smoke and a joke and a, and a meal, and then go to, you know, go to work in the studios in Hollywood at the Hollywood Bowl or the Greek Theater, and then they come back, and we always had, you know, limos out front and people hanging out. and It was a, a heady world for, for all of us. And Steven fit right in and he'd go anywhere. There was a piece of film being projected. He went to see it. You know, we, we went to see a lot of underground stuff projected on bed sheets and houses in Laurel Canyon because, you know, Steven wanted to see everything. And we, and, and then of course, when, when, uh, uh, Jaws came along, he suggested I work on it and I agreed. And that's how that started. We stayed friends for a long time after that. It became Steven Spielberg, and uh, we went our different ways. What was that working relationship like for you guys, even while you're in the pitching phase, and then especially when you're working on Jaws? My background in improvisation was all about cooperation, and before yes and became a cliche, it was my mantra. I mean, it was how I worked. I, you know, I, I was I was trained to you know, work with what I was given by the other person, and the case of Spielberg, I was being given genius, and I could uh, uh, I could do my part and make it better. So it was an, a very natural collaboration. I had no ego. You know, Stephen was clearly the auteur of what we were doing, uh, but I was there to serve his vision. 
and play a part in the movie and uh, be a slightly older advice and counsel when necessary. But when it came to filmmaking, you know, I would step back and let him work his magic. And, but if he needed words, that was what I was there for. There's the story of getting an early draft of the screenplay with a note on it saying, you know, eviscerate it. What was that screenplay like? That was the Howard Sackler interim re- rewrite of the Peter Benchley. And it was a serviceable professional job, but the characters were cliche and the action was kind of wooden. And they still had some features of the novel, I think, were still in it, uh, like the... the uh, love affair between Hooper and, and Ellen Brody. And as soon as Stephen and I started working on it, it became evident that we would have to dismantle it and throw away all the underbrush and all the, all the fringe elements and all the bullshit. And we were writing for specific actors, you know, uh, Lorraine Gary and Roy Scheider and Robert Shaw and Richard Dreyfuss and me. So we were, you know, we were able to tailor the material to the actors, which meant basically throwing out Sackler's whole script. But because for budgetary reasons and everything else, that was the script that the whole company was working off of. So we had to explain to everybody that what the new script would look like. It hadn't, it hadn't been written yet. We were writing it. I mean, I started on the movie 17 days before principal photography. Uh, so, you know, it's a, it's a terrible way to make a movie, but was, we were fearless. You know, Stephen and I just said, okay, let's just throw out everything, keep what we need and make it better. And the, and the result is what, what you saw, even though it was over budget and over, over kill, and you know, the last two months were hell for Stephen and the three actors. I was gone by that time because they filmed all the dialogue. You know, all, all, all the talk scenes were done, so I got to go home. Took my Jaws money, and I bought a little BMW in New Jersey. And my wife joined me, and we drove the BMW back to L.A., stopping, of course, in Nashville, where all our friends were making an Altman film called Nashville. So we stopped in Nashville and said hi to Bob Altman and Ronnie Blakely and you know some of the other, Alan Garfield, some of the people I knew from L.A., and, uh, and then we continued on our way. So it was like a great cross-pollination. Then we got back and we got back to L.A., and then eventually Stephen came back and went to work on post-production on Jaws, and, and that became history. And then Jaws, you know, like all big movies, it, it spawned a sequel, and Stephen was prepping Close Encounters, so he passed on the sequel. And I passed on it because they offered it to me for scale. I said, no, not you know, considering the success film, scale for the, re- for the second for the sequel is an insult. I said to my agent, pass, but they're going to be back and it's going to cost them. And sure enough, they began with a different ad script and they shipped the director throughout the script that I was hired to do the rewrite. That's how I did Jaws 2. It sounds like this is being written on the fly, almost like the pages, do they still smell the mimeograph when they're being handed to the actors the next morning? Is that how? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, I was right. Oh, some days I would be able to get ahead of the schedule, but other days, you know, they, uh, I, I would write during the day, Zanuck or Brown and Verna Fields, the editor, would come at to, for dinner. We would we'd go through the new pages, and then they would, they would take the pages away and 
keep the secretaries working overnight in the morning. Those would be the pages that were distributed to the cast to shoot. Did you have some sort of master blueprint that you guys were working off of? In those days in journalism, there was a thing called copy paper, which was a cheap yellow paper that was used to type first drafts and, and uh, send stuff to uh, to the typographers. Taking we had kind of you know disassembled the script, and I made notes, and I had three pages of eight and a half by eleven, you know, typing paper, copy, scotch taped together. So they made a long, like a scroll, and that had everything from, you know, act one, scene one to the finale on it. And when we had the last minute production before we started shooting the whole movie, and the whole company had, had you know, uh, had to be present to ask questions. Either you'd go through the whole script and the producer and the production manager, all the department heads are there. And we had this piece of paper with an outline for the movie that we were working off. And with the absolute assurance of youth and enthusiasm, we went through the script and did say, okay, the lighthouse scene is out. We're never going to be there. Don't, be, don't even build it. We'll do a drive-by. The, you know, this Brody house, we're definitely going to be in the interior. Better prepare that. You know, the exterior town, yes, we have the town hall. We need the, you know. I went through the whole script, you know, giving them what we thought we would need. And, uh, yeah, and then that that piece of paper hung over my desk for the next three months while I wrote the pages. And on the days when I wasn't writing, I was out on the set acting. Yeah, I was going to ask you how you balance that. Well, you, you you balance it. I mean, you do, you know, on the days when you're writing, you write. On the days when you're acting, you act. But since I was acting in scenes being directed by Spielberg, if we wanted to talk about something or if I had an idea for the scene, I would say to Stephen, well, how about if we do this or that actor just had a funny ad lib. Let's use that. And then we built a movie as we went, you know, assembling it from all the moving parts. And it must have been refreshing to be able to write for particular actors. I mean, you ha- must have had that beforehand working with some of the television shows. In the history of theater, the best writing ever done Shakespeare, Moliere, Eugene O'Neill, for starters. They all wrote for a company of actors. When Shakespeare wrote Hamlet, he had an, he had an actor, John Bur- uh, Richard Burbage, in mind. He, you know, he knew he knew that actor's work, so he wrote for that actor's strengths. The opportunity to write for actors is crucial. I mean, you, you, we don't often get that. Writers are often off the picture long before the picture is made, so we have to trust the director with our vision. <clears throat> often, not a good thing. But uh, it was it was great writing for actors because you hear their voice and you, you know you you you're writing dialogue for voices and personalities that you know and it it it's, uh, it contributes it, it it makes it invaluable and, and a lot of great you know John Ford had a stock company of actors all the stock company of actors uh, you know Michael Kerr. they're just you know. A lot of the auteur directors, you know, going from Cassavetes on back, all all wrote for a company of actors. And you could say in the heyday of the motion picture studio system, the resident company of contract players was the stock company. If you wrote a movie for MGM, you knew that Margaret had to be the bad woman and, and uh, Eugene Paulette would be the bustering businessman and that... Um, or if you did a Warner Brothers movie, you knew that Humphrey Bogart would be in there. You know, you were writing 
it's great when you write for actors. And, and, and Hollywood, at its best, did that. I mean, all the John Wayne movies were written for John Wayne. It wasn't, it wasn't like, let's, let's get a Western actor. <clears throat> so, uh, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's an invaluable asset to be working with actors in production. It doesn't happen often enough. I know that your character suffered a lot by you kind of writing yourself out. And I was curious, what would Meadows have brought to things if you had allowed him to have more lines? Um, I could have been useful for exposition and explaining. I could have summed up a lot of shark facts. I could have talked about the mayor and his problems. We could have you know, kind of salvaged that part of the storyline. Or we could, or I could uh, also mediate the, the character could mediate between Hooper and uh, and Scheider and look at Hooper, Scheider, and Quint. But by the time I was, I'd written myself out, there was no need for Meadows. So, you know, he fell by the wayside. But you can tell that the part was important because in the release prints, they don't exist anymore, but in the release prints and the very first uh, VHS version of Jaws, the main title say, uh, Richard Dreyfus, Robert Shaw, Shatter in Jaws, also starring Carl Gottlieb, Murray Hamilton, and Lorraine Gary. I had equal billing. And then, you know, when the movie was finally finished, and um, then my name fell off the main titles. So did you write a huge Meadows part for Jaws 2? <laughs> no, no, no. By that time, I, I, that was that was under pressure. I had three weeks to get a script written that they could shoot. That was also a difficult shoot. By that time, Verna Fields was an executive at Universal. I think the Zanuck Brown were still the producers. The production team was in place. And my virtue was that when they got in trouble, I had to come up with a device that would skew the picture to the youth market. And that's when I invented the notion that kids with sailboats could cruise the way kids with cars cruised you know, Van Nuys Boulevard. So once I had that device in mind, then I had young people in jeopardy, which is what you need. And we had a, a, a really skillful journeyman director named Jeno Swark, who <laughs> was interesting. He and Spielberg used to share an office at Universal when they were both first-time directors. So, and and, and Jeno was a, uh, a cineast, but he was also a working, you know, practical director. So he he got the job done and did a great and did a great job with it, considering he had very little to do with the prep. I'm curious how it was working on Jaws 3. Was that the same experience uh, as far as... Yep. They started without me. They got in trouble. I flew, to, I flew to Florida. I met the cast. I saw the set. Met the producer. Figured I could do something and did what I could. In all the three pictures, I there was no arbitration on the first one. I don't know if there was an arbitration on the second. There was an arbitration on the third. And I got, you know, I got a writer's credit, so I obviously I obviously did enough to qualify. By that time, it was a money job. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't for the art. I wasn't trying to save the franchise. I was just trying to do as good a job as I could, which to me is the hallmark of a professional. I'm curious what you're working on these days. Well, I've got, a, you know, I've got half a dozen spec scripts I wrote over the years that I'd like to put back out there. You know, the, uh, Everybody I knew who I could show them to is either you know, running a studio and doesn't have time to read scripts, so I have to start again. And of course, these days uh, are not conducive to collaborate. 
So you know, I'm, I'm kind of stumbling along. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, and, I, and to tell you the truth, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm tired. I, I've been sick. Uh, I'm, you know, I have to be careful of my health. So, uh, you know, I am acting my age. Great thing about being a writer is that you're never too old to write. Well, Mr. Gottlieb, thank you so much for your time. Again, it was such a pleasure speaking with you. Oh, you're welcome. And I look forward to seeing you when you're done. Be well and happy and enjoy your work on this one. John LeMay, tell me a little bit more about yourself. What got you interested in writing about film? I've just grown up like everybody listening to this podcast. I love films. Uh, I love a pretty diverse uh, list of genres from Godzilla movies to James Bond to Jaws. I started out writing history books, and uh, I just wanted to do a guidebook on all the different uh, Japanese giant monster movies. That was my first ever book in terms of film history. That led to a book on the unmade Godzilla movies, which uh, in writing about that, I had to write about a few unmade sequels to King Kong versus Godzilla. So then I wrote a book called Kong Unmade about all the unmade King Kong movies. And in researching that, I found King Kong versus Orca. And, you know, Orca was kind of like, I don't think it's fair to call Orca a Jaws ripoff, but it was a Jaws inspired film. So, so basically what I'm saying is Godzilla led to King Kong and then King Kong led me to a Jaws book. That's how we got to this new book, Jaws Unmade. The thing that I'm so impressed by is just the level of research that you did. How did you manage to uncover all of these inspired films that were either made or, as you say in the title, unmade? Because there are as many projects that almost happened as ended up happening. Yes. You know what I will say that's really frustrating about Hollywood that makes research difficult? is everybody takes credit for somebody else's idea. So he'll be reading about, no, this was my idea, or, or no, I actually thought of that. But what I do is I read every book I can find, like the Jaws Logs are a great source. You know, they did the first one, the Jaws Log, then the Jaws Log 2 back in the, the 1970s when the films were actually made. And they have quite a bit on the uh, the abandoned concepts. And then there's some newer books, like Just When You Thought It Was Safe is a great one. Uh, Jaws 2, The Making of a Hollywood Sequel is a, another excellent book. But I just read all of those, and I, I glean every bit that I can from them. And it's like putting together the pieces of a puzzle again, because each one will usually have conflicting uh, sources or stories in terms of, of what all the different people say. Um, you know, like we could use Arthur C. Clarke as a good example. He was invited to pitch a storyline for Jaws 2. And I found all these sources that said that Arthur C. Clarke wrote, wrote a story about an alien orb that's found in the Indian Ocean, and somehow that controls a shark. And a bunch of different sources said this, but I finally found uh, a book that Clarke himself wrote. Um, oh, it was actually a book about giant squids, and, and from in Clarke's own words, he says, I wrote a story about a giant squid. He doesn't say anything about an alien orb or any of this, so... You, you know, that's what I'm talking about when I say there's all these conflicting sources and, and just how in Hollywood things get so misconstrued. 
Um, so that's that's the only frustrating aspect to this research, but otherwise it's a lot of fun. You talk a lot about um, Barracuda and Tentacoli and just how close to Jaws does it have to be in order to say, yeah, this was a ripoff. I've been taken to task recently in one of the reviews that I didn't include Alligator as a Jaws ripoff. And I love Alligator, the, the, the 1980 film. But I don't really think of Alligator as that much of a Jaws ripoff. I thought it was pretty original, um, even though I'm, I'm, Jaws certainly paved the way for its uh, production. I think my, my criteria was just anything that was a, an aquatic-based horror movie that was released you know, very close to Jaws or Jaws 2, as opposed to like Jaws 3 and Jaws the Revenge. I don't think they had quite as many rip-offs. Grizzly, for instance, even though it's not about an aquatic-based predator, the movie itself is, is very much Jaws on land. The producers even said, you know, that's how they described it. Jaws on land. It has the three male lead that's very similar to Quint and Brody and Hooper. And again, it's it's just Grizzly is Jaws with a shark. So that's why, for instance, I included Grizzly, even though it's a, a land based film. And like I said, the aquatic ones, though, I, I guess I just looked at whether or not they were probably produced because Jaws was such a big hit, even if maybe they don't have a lot in common with Jaws. Like Orca, I think, is a very different animal from jaws i i really don't think of it as a jaws ripoff so much as a movie that was produced in the the wake of jaws success at some point you have to draw a line in the sand pun intended to say i'm not going to go down that rabbit hole of say the sci-fi movies where it's the two-headed shark the land shark sharknado all these things did you say to yourself, like, this is it, I'm going to cap this at, say, you know, 20 years after Jaws, there's no more necessarily rip-offs of Jaws? Yes, thank you for bringing that up. I, I did not want to do the deluge of, of post-2000 era CGI shark movies. I, I don't have anything against them, but um, if I chose to review all of those, I think I'd still be writing this book for the next couple of years. And uh, and again, I I don't like CGI movies, cheap CGI movies. I I would prefer bad practical effects to CGI. I just get bored with it. So yeah, that that was it. And I and I don't really feel like Sharknado is is what you would call a ripoff of Jaws. I don't even feel like Deep Blue Sea is a a Jaws ripoff, so to speak, even though it's got sharks in it. I I yeah. So I just wanted to keep it closer to the 1970s, and I only veered away from the 70s and the 80s, unless it was really a Jaws-inspired film, such as uh, the Bollywood version of Jaws called Atank. It was actually released in 1996, but it's very clearly it's a Jaws movie. And Cruel Jaws as well, uh, which it came out in 1995 and actually tried to market itself as Jaws 5 in some countries. You know, So that's another one that I included, despite being pretty far removed from the 1970s. Going back to what ripoffs to include... I'll be honest, there were some that I watched, like uh, I watched The Great Alligator from, I think it was 1979 with Barbara Bach, and I watched it, and I saw some some Jaws-related stuff in it, but I, to be perfectly honest with you, I just couldn't write a whole review on that movie. I had nothing to say about it. It wasn't so bad that it was good, and it wasn't good enough to really highlight anything about it. It was just one of those movies that I watched, and I had nothing to say about it. So I, I did try with the Crocodile films to some degree, but I I just, uh, I don't know, at the end of the day, it didn't feel right. Well, with some of those, I imagine that they fit almost more into the nature gone wild. I know at least with 
alligator. I can't remember which one it was that it played off of the urban legend of the um, the alligators being flushed down the toilets. Yeah, but, and like Day of the Animals is another one that I would not say has anything to do with Jaws. But uh, I will say that's one funny thing. This is how this book developed was I didn't think that there would be enough Jaws-related movies. So this book originally, I think the title was Animals Attack Unmade just because I thought I'd find a bunch of Animals Attack movies. But what I found was a ton of Jaws movies. And since I had already done Kong Unmade, I just really liked the idea of titling it Jaws Unmade. It just felt right. So I'm, I'm glad you brought up the, the animals attack genre, which is kind of related to Jaws, but it, but not – I wouldn't say – I don't really think of, of a lot of those animals attack movies as being ripoffs of Jaws, though. Did you go anywhere near the Jaws porn parodies like Deep Jaws or Gums? No, I, I actually didn't even know those existed and – even though I'm sure it's mostly adults reading the book, I do like to keep it kid-friendly, so to speak. So I probably wouldn't have covered them anyways, but that is interesting. I, I didn't know such things existed. It's interesting. They almost play more with mermaids than sharks, even though the titles definitely play against Jaws. What were some of your favorite stories that you read or that you managed to uncover? So I am intrigued by Richard Matheson's idea to send Jaws into an inland lake. That was the original idea for Jaws 3. Before it was Jaws 3D, it was just Jaws 3. And uh, they called in Richard Matheson to write the script. And uh, again, he thought it would be interesting if a shark began, uh, swam into a saltwater river and became trapped in an inland lake where no one would expect there to be a shark. I think that's kind of an interesting idea, but I do love Jaws 3D. It actually is my favorite of the sequels. Um, and the Quint prequel that everybody always talks about, that uh, before they did Jaws 2, Howard Sackler, his first idea for a Jaws sequel was to uh, do a whole movie revolving around Quint's famous speech about surviving the, the sinking of the USS Indianapolis. Uh, I think that probably would have been a wonderful film. Um, it... <sighs> I don't know if, if, like, let's say hypothetically, that the Jaws prequel about Quint back in World War II surviving these multiple shark attacks when his his Navy ship sinks. I don't know if that would have spawned any more sequels like Jaws 2 would have, but I do think that the Quint prequel would have probably been a much more interesting film. What well, is interesting, and I'm glad that you point out that there have been other movies about the USS Indianapolis. I think there was one even predating Jaws, and then there have been several over the last few years, including one with Nicolas Cage. Yeah, but I, I thought about watching those, but I just never got around to it. I would not rush out to see any of them. What were your favorite of the uh, Jaws ripoff movies? Before I ever saw Jaws, I saw Jaws when I was about 10, I saw a Jaws ripoff from Japan, and I saw it when I was about four, and it's all due to a mistake. So Japan made a Jaws-type movie with the dinosaurs. It's basically a Loch Ness Monster-type story about a plesiosaurus that lives in a lake in Japan, and there's a lot of callbacks to Jaws in the movie. And when it got shipped over to America, it never had a theatrical release. It was called Legend of the Dinosaurs. And uh, just because it was a Japanese monster movie like Godzilla, the people who distributed it didn't really put a lot of thought into what they were doing. And they marketed it under their Just for Kids label, even though it was basically almost an R-rated level horror movie. 
where this dinosaur viciously chews up people and, and eats them from out of the lake. And, you know, my parents saw that it was just for kids and it was next to the Godzilla movie. So they, they rented it for me from Blockbuster. And for a, a four-year-old, that was a horrifying movie. So that one made me afraid to go in the water way before I ever saw Jaws. And so that one's definitely one of my favorites. It's just basically Jaws with a plesiosaurus, and I think it's pretty well done. But uh, my favorite, the one I think is probably the best, is probably Orca, which is basically like Death Wish. The mate is avenging his dead wife and child. And it's kind of funny because Dino De Laurentiis produced both Death Wish and Orca, so it's kind of funny they both have the same story. But I think Orca's the best of the ripoffs, hands down. And what one was the toughest for you to get through? The one with Richard Jekyll, not Grizzly. I love Grizzly. I thought Grizzly was great. Uh, the one he did, uh, Mako Jaws of Death, I thought was pretty boring. Up from the depths that Roger Corman made, I had seen the VHS box art for years, and it looked so cool. So I had high expectations for it, and then when I saw it, I, I really didn't enjoy that one too much. Um, it'd probably be easier to ask which ones did I actually enjoy. And of those, I would basically just say uh, Grizzly, I think, is spectacular. The Piranha movies, I think, were pretty good. Um, I can see why Spielberg, he he was someone who actually appreciated what Piranha was and what it was trying to do. And uh, those were the only really good ripoffs, in my opinion. The other ones were kind of hard to get through. Spielberg isn't necessarily known for that many sequels, you know, not the Indiana Jones films notwithstanding. How close was he to helming any of the Jaws sequels? Uh, he immediately passed on Jaws to not, obviously not because he hated Jaws. I mean, uh, he, he loved Jaws, but it was just the stress of making a movie on the water and he didn't want to go through another stressful water movie. So that's why he passed on Jaws the first time around. And he was also busy at that time working on Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Now, when they started shooting Jaws 2 with, with John Hancock, was the original director, and John Hancock got let go, Spielberg did get approached about doing Jaws 2 again. And Spielberg, uh, I believe this was the 4th of July weekend, 1977, after they had just shut down production on Jaws 2, uh, Spielberg actually did entertain the idea of coming back for Jaws 2, but he told... Uh, Universal, if I do it, you've got to wait until I'm done on Close Encounters and we can shoot in the spring of 78. But Universal had already uh, carved out a release spot and they wanted to, to get it out at a certain date. And that was just too late for them. Gosh, it just kills me because Spielberg says that over that weekend, he wrote out several different sequel ideas that would have reteamed Hooper and Brody again. Because the presumption was uh, Richard Dreyfuss would probably come back if Spielberg was directing, so Hooper would have come back. Um, but Spielberg, he never ever elaborates on what those those ideas were. And then this is another of those instances of conflicting reports. I see a lot of credible sources that say that Spielberg, instead of doing a, a typical Jaws sequel with uh, Hooper and Brody, that Spielberg found out about Sackler's idea to do the Quint prequel. And Spielberg supposedly said, well, I'll do it if we do it as the Quint prequel. And I'm, I'm not sure if Universal really entertained that or not, but I, I, all I know is the reason they wouldn't do it is just because he Spielberg wouldn't be available until it was too late. 
I was really glad to read more in your book about Jaws 3 People Zero because I had been hearing about that one for years, but didn't necessarily know the history behind it. You know, I've read the screenplay, but never knew why it existed. This is a theory I've come up with that nobody else has ever put forth. During filming of Jaws 2, uh, one of the actors who played one of the teenagers, his name was Keith Gordon, he wrote a spoof script of the Jaws 2 shoot, and he called it Jaws 2.5 Second Revised Renewed Updated Screenplay. And his his opening description was two scuba divers are wearing, uh, quote, minimal rubber. In fact, they are naked. And at this point, the producer, David Brown, would walk in screaming and say, that's an R, that's an R. We can't do that because the joke on Jaws 2 was they were constantly getting censored because Universal didn't want to make an R-rated movie. They wanted it to be PG so the grosses would be higher. So there was a lot of tug of war on Jaws 2 as to what they could and couldn't show. And uh, basically Keith Gordon made a, a big joke out of that with his his fake shooting script. But David Brown actually got his hands on Keith Gordon's little spoof script and he read it and he loved it. And uh, this is just my conjecture because David Brown has never said I did a Jaws. I wanted to do a Jaws parody because of Keith Gordon. He's never said that. But I don't think it's a it's just a coincidence that as Jaws 2 was rapping, I, I, I've seen a documentary where where uh, Brown actually says as Jaws 2 rapped, we were thinking for Jaws 3, we'd make it a parody. So to me, I, I just think Keith Gordon had to have given Zanuck and Brown the idea to do a Jaws parody for part three, even though, again, Keith Gordon did not write uh, Jaws, Jaws three people zero. Um, and another thing on that, this is, this is one of the only people I actually talked to that worked on the Jaws films. Such a nice guy is actor Billy Van Zant. He played one of the teenagers as well named Bob. And Billy told me something I had never heard, which was he said David Brown called him and asked him, would you like to be in Jaws 3 People Zero along with uh, Keith Gordon? So again, that, that gets me to thinking that uh, that uh, that was David Brown's kind of consolation prize to, to the kids who worked on Jaws 2 and kind of gave him the spoof idea that they could be in Jaws 3 People Zero. Again, that's just my own conjecture. And then how does that go to National Lampoon? Because I've heard ideas of like Joe Dante directing that. I think uh, John Hughes was one of the writers on that, right? That's correct, yes. And I also found a, a newspaper article that claimed that Chevy Chase pitched it as Jaws meets Animal House. And that's I've only seen that in one newspaper article from the late 1970s, so who knows if that's that's true or not. It was at least close to the time period. I believe Zanuck and Brown went to National Lampoons and got them on board, if I'm not mistaken. National Lampoons kind of took it over from there. But, you know, Zanuck and Brown were 100% behind it. And Universal really wasn't behind it 100%. And there's a lot of different reasons given for why that was. Um, some sources say that Universal didn't want to see a Jaws comedy because they knew that would forever and ever kill sequels. There would be no going back to a a serious Jaws series, and I think they wanted to do... I mean, as any studio does, they want to do sequels from here to eternity as long as they make money. So that was their fear, I think, with Jaws 3. Um, one source claimed that Spielberg didn't want him to do it, and I don't know if I believe that or not, but the, somebody else says Spielberg managed to squash the project. And the other reason given was that if they had done it, just because of the, the sexual comedy more than anything else, it would have been a hard R-rated 
film and Universal again that they always wanted Jaws to be PG so it could make more money. Can you tell me a little bit about the Meg? Because even though you do stay away from Sharknado and those things, you do kind of dip into more recent times by talking about the Meg. Yeah, the Meg, I remember firsthand when I was about 10 years old in 1996 when the book first came out. I I was actually bought it in a bookstore, you know, as opposed to online. I bought the book and and the kid who worked at the bookstore was like, oh, yeah, this is this is so cool, this book. And now the Disney's going to make a movie out of this book. And I was like, oh, cool, you know, because I love Jaws. And and so I read the book and I really liked it. It was kind of beyond my my criteria for the book again because I again I just wanted to stick more to the the classic era, and the Meg just dated literally for about twenty years uh, in terms of different story drafts and and attempts to get it on screen, and it sounds like to me the the reason it didn't get made at Disney is it was one of those stupid political deals where the the current studio head got fired or booted out and therefore you couldn't develop any of the projects that he had in development because that would make it seem like he had a good idea and they had to make it look like all his projects were were dumb ideas. So it sounds to me that the, the first aborted mega attempt was kind of a silly political thing. And then the author Steve Alton worked really hard at finally getting it on screen and uh, there were a lot of strange ideas. He mentioned that one of the scripts that some other writer wrote gave the Meg wings and it could fly. And I really wish he would have elaborated on that. And I, I definitely liked the the film that came out in 2017 or 18, whenever it was. Uh, I do wish it would have been closer to the book, though, but it, it was good. So tell me, what are you working on these days? So right now, I, I also have a fanzine. It's the Lost Films fanzine. I'm having a lot of fun with it. And right now I'm doing a, a special issue devoted just to Hammer Films uh, dinosaur movies, like When Dinosaurs Ruled the Earth, Creatures the Earth Forgotten, of course, One Million Years B.C. So that's that's where my, my mind is right now. That's, that's why I kind of have trouble remembering all the Jaws stuff, is that that was several months ago now. Is that kind of your seedbed for your next book project? Yes, that that was one thing I thought about. To be honest, the fanzine came about just because of COVID, and I was bored, and I you know I couldn't go outside as much, and I'd always been kind of in the back of my mind thinking about doing a fanzine, and you know print on demand makes everything so easy. So I thought, you know I'm just gonna gonna experiment with it, and I'm having a lot of fun with it. So I'm glad that I did. But again, it's the the Lost Films fanzine. And is there a good place for people to keep up with you online? Yeah, I don't have my own website. I just have a, an Amazon author page. So it's John LeMay, and LeMay is L-E-M-A-Y. Although if you if you just type in Jaws Unmade and then you click on my name from there, you'll also you'll find my page. So, well, John LeMay, thank you so much for talking, sir. This was great. I've enjoyed it. It's a, it's an honor to be on here. I you know I'm kind of a plebeian when it comes to podcasts. I don't listen to. A lot of them, but I, I was telling my friends who they themselves do movie podcasts, and I, I was asking, and they're like, you're going to be on the, the projector booth? That's amazing. Well, I'm, I'm very honored that they had that reaction. That's great. Yeah, yeah so I, it was an honor to be on here, and I, I really enjoyed it. We are here on the beach where a giant shark has just eaten a girl swimmer. Well, Mr. Jaws, how was it? And what did she say when you grabbed her? I know sharks are stupid, but what did you think when you took that first bite? How sweet it is. 
Jaws. Mr. Jaws, before you swim out to sea, have you anything else to say? With me now is the local sheriff. Sheriff Brody, the shark will be back for lunch. What do you intend to do? Just arriving is oceanographer Matt Hooper. Sir, if someone is attacked by a shark, what should they do? We're going aboard the fishing boat of Captain Quint. Captain, will you be able to catch this giant shark? Thank you, Captain. Captain, 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 when you catch one of these sharks, what do you feel like? Like a rhinestone cowboy. We've just sighted the shark again. He's coming straight for us. Captain Quint is shouting something at him. Get your baby one of these nights. Hey, Jaws, the captain says he's going to catch you. What do you think of that? Uh-oh, here he comes again. They've hit him. Mr. Jaws, why doesn't anything seem to hurt you? He's coming right onto the boat. Mr. Jaws, why are you grabbing my hand? Wouldn't you give your hand to a friend? No, wait. Mr. Jaws, that's not the way this record is supposed to end. Help! All right, we are back and we are talking about Jaws. And, you know, I mentioned earlier that Carl's book, Carl Gottlieb's uh, Jaws Log, is the making of book. Even if you're not a fan of Jaws, and God help you if you're not, but even if you're just interested in films and filmmaking, you have to read the Jaws Log because it is one of the seminal books about filmmaking. It's fantastic. It goes along, you know, I had the Jaws log when, when the movie was out. And I guess that's another reason why I was interested in writing and filmmaking because of that book. That book was just unbelievable. Well, it helps you remember how many people are involved in making a movie. You know, Jamie, you mentioned like the 200 people that you see in the credits and the thousand people that were actually there, you know, around and that helped out in some way, whether it be just, uh, you know, a heavy woman walking down the beach that you see every single time, whether it be, you know, the, the guy with the dog in the, in the city council meeting or any of those people in the city council meeting, you'll never be an Islander. Any of those people just it helps you remember how many people make these things and just to read these stories and just that this was not an easy shoot but then they end up coming out with something that is just so perfect i don't know how they did it i mean the shoot i would have lost my mind shooting that movie on the on the ocean and the truck they had i don't know how i don't know how they did and the and as we said the photography some of those shots out on the boat how did they get them i i don't know Watching it with different eyes on, like the the maker's eyes, you just imagine that that just 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 left and just right of each frame, there's just this huge amount of boats and people and and gas tanks for the shark and everything else. But the magic he caught in the frame between those, you know, those things is just fantastic. And I read a thing uh, that they they average like twenty five seconds a day of film 
Can you imagine the setup, like where you're trying to, you're bobbing out there in a boat and you're trying to get the shark to go past and it doesn't go past. You have to reset it. They have to re-grease the rails that are on the, the flat sandy bed underwater and the scuba divers have to go down. Maybe they need a break because they've been on a shift for too long. So they have to swap shifts. And so they, those guys go down and grease it and you have to reset the camera. And then the tide moves and, uh, and then the wind moves and then a boat comes into shot on the horizon and, you can't just go right back to first positions and let's go again. It's, it's, yeah. I mean, to do that in open water as, as much as it was a hugely bold move. I mean, it really makes the movie, uh, you know, we buy it. We absolutely buy that they're there. If they'd have tried to do it in a tank or anything else, we immediately know, don't we? But, um, yeah, Jaws 4. Cause I heard when I was younger, I heard, Oh yeah, they just, and it was probably because of Jaws 4. Oh, they just shot all of this at, uh, Universal's backlot. And I'd be like, what? That, that seemed kind of wild. But so I was very impressed that they were able to do what they did. And then when they, when I actually heard that they shouted on the ocean, I was like, Oh, okay. Yeah. That's a lot harder than shooting this in Universal's backlot. You do not get these overhead shots that easy. You know, and this is pre-drone photography, and yet you get shots from outside of the boat that look wonderful. So being shot from another boat, but it's not bouncing up and down. And you had to hear those stories about how Verna Fields was just sitting there waiting for things to edit that Spielberg, I think he said on a good day, he would have five shots for her to edit. And on a bad day, he would have no shots to edit. And then on an average day, he would have two or three that is wild. And yeah, we're not talking 20 minute takes here. We're talking a couple frames here, a couple frames there. And that's how this movie was made. And, and I always think about the perilous nature of doing out in the sea. You know, there could have been any moment where, you know, Mike Chapman up on the mast, you know, in the crow's nest, kind of getting that shot all the way down the mast to the, to the boat, to the, to the orca. And, you know, he could have fallen out or Shida could have gone down with a sinking boat or, you know, <laughs> so all of these things that were happening on a minute by minute basis. It's, I mean, you've been out in open water. It's bloody dangerous, let alone trying to make a movie out there and trying to act and trying to get a shark working. I mean, Bruce, you know, had never been tested in open water before they put it out there. And the sea is very, very different to a swimming pool. Well, just that it's salt water. I mean, salt water plays hell with things. I can't imagine having a mechanical device in the water and expecting it to play nice with salt water. Some of the divers would have to get the algae off there, wouldn't they? And they'd have to kind of scrape off anything like any, you know, sea creatures that had attached themselves to it. And it's a constant and constant maintenance job. There's a ton of pictures of Joe Alves out there scrubbing, scrubbing the shark, trying to get it clean. It's so good. Because it would come back heavier every day, right? It would like it would soak up some of the water, and it just never kind of got rid of it. So they'd have to put blowers on it overnight, and and hope it would be ready for the morning. And could actually could we shoot the one with the right side that's open rather than the left side that's open because that one's still drying out and it needs touching up with paint. Pfft, yeah, that's why I love this though because it's that real problem solving filmmaking. It isn't just like okay, uh, yeah, we'll fix that in post. I love the idea that it had to be done in camera and it was problem solving. It was, you know, mechanics, it was engineers. It was people just trying to come up with the best way to get past this, this new hurdle. I've never read Joe Alves' book about uh, designing Jaws. It's good. It has all his, all his uh, charcoal drawings and stuff like that. You know, that stuff for me is gold to see that. So it's, it's a decent book. I recommend it. 
I ordered it about two hours ago. I ordered two copies, actually. I'm going to give one to a buddy of mine who really kind of pushed me on to do the Jaws filmumentary at the time, actually. And, uh, yeah, he's just moved into a new place. So that's going to be his, uh, his, uh, home, you know, welcome to your new home present. <laughs> Have you guys gotten a chance to read, uh, Pat Jankowitz's Just When You Thought It Was Safe? Yeah, I did read it a while ago. I'm trying to remember which one that was. Well, it's kind of a making of, plus it talks a lot about the sequels. I mean, I think it's a really good companion to the Jaws log. Yeah, it's got it's the shot that covers the shark on the boat, right? Yeah, I remember it. It's like a, an extended Wikipedia kind of uh, article, isn't it? There's a lot of factual stuff in there. A lot of uh, it kind of it fleshes out some of the, the the gaps that Gottlieb leaves. Not that there are many, but you know, it's his perspective and it's a unique perspective. But um, Pat uh, Jankowitz does does somehow fill in those little holes that you know. For people hungry still for more Jaws information, it is definitely a good companion. Yeah, and it doesn't feel like he's just kind of, you know, churning the the past up. It's just, it, it feels like he's really actually done his work, which is fantastic. And then John LeMay, who I talked to uh, during the interview section, his Jaws Unmade. I was not aware of that one before coming into this um, until you, Chris, pointed that out to me. And I'm so glad that you did, because it is exactly the kind of book that I love, where it is talking about... Here's Jaws, and then here's all the ripoffs, the sequels, the never mades. Just, and he does a great job of uncovering a lot of things. And I mean, I, I have heard of more of the movies in there than I've actually seen. And then that he was able to actually stomach going through all of those because I've tried with Tentacoli. I've really tried many times to watch that movie and I've never been able to make it through. That is a fascinating read. Um, I was I was just happy that they finally shed some light on the uh, Arthur C. Clarke proposal for Jaws two that I was always fascinated about. I didn't know about that until I read this, and yeah, who wouldn't be intrigued about it? I love this kind of alternate universe <laughs> where this film could have been made, um, and Arthur C. Clarke's pitch, and yeah, I mean, there's quite a bit of information about it out there which I wasn't aware of, and I'm going to dig into some of that. Although he wanted it to be an octopus, I think. Yeah, but, tentacles, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I do love that, though, with the with this idea that, you know, you have a successful movie and Hollywood just kind of goes, right, there's a formula there, right, we need to do this, but but with a bear or with a smaller fish or, you know, anything, just I need the money, just that kind of desperation. Um, it's like with Star Wars, isn't it, when everybody went out and just tried to make a space fantasy movie but kind of didn't get what the ingredients were. Yeah. <laughs> well, God, that um, Cruel Jaws, that movie, just if you like Jaws and you just want to see everything kind of like taken and put on the Xerox machine and then Xeroxed a hundred times, I mean, it, and I mean Xeroxes of the Xeroxes rather than just making a hundred copies of the same item. That's, th that is so much that movie. That is crazy how just what a weird redo of jaws that is is that that's the italian one right yeah it is and sometimes it's called uh jaws yeah. five i've seen it listed as the beast as well it was called wasn't it i think at one time i think it had a... which one is the one with uh vic morrow and uh chamberlain is oh, that let's it? see yeah i think that is it um with the, the famous uh it wasn't a floating chainsaw i want to say that the beast might have been 
Oh, okay. James Franciscus and Vic Morrow. Yep. Yep. The last shark. I know I've never seen that one. It's uh, it's something. But you look on all of these posters and the, the shark is in pretty much the same pose as either the original Jaws poster or a frame that was in Jaws. I think that the beast might've been a different one. And I'm trying to remember if that was the one that was the, there was a TV movie that was made. Which was based on Peter Benchley book. Uh, the beast. That was an octopus movie. That was an octopus movie. And I, I want to say, was that the one with, um, William Peterson in it? Yes, it was as whip Dalton. Yeah. What yeah. an mm-hmm. amazing name. And Larry Drake was Larry Drake. in that. Larry Drake. There you go. Yeah, I've never actually seen it. I read the book when it came out, but I never saw the uh, uh, the movie. I watched it, and basically as you go through that movie, you can just start quoting things from Jaws as you watch it. <laughs> like, like just implied lines rather than actual quotes from things. And yeah, Cruel Jaws, I seem to remember being a mix of Jaws plus a little bit of Jaws 2 in there. I was glad to read more about the Dorothy Tristan script for Jaws 2 and more of John Hancock's version of Jaws 2. What a troubled production Jaws 2 was, just to hear how they were shooting it and then had to reshoot it. I had no idea about those stories. Where do you guys sit on Jaws 2? How do you guys feel about the actual movie? I haven't seen it in 30 years, I don't think. I think I saw it on TV here in the UK um, when it first aired. And I just remember the demise of the shark rather than the film itself because it was like, oh, how are they going to do it this time? Um, and yeah, I was I was chatting on Twitter last night actually saying, should I go and watch it again? And it was divided, completely divided, 50-50. Yes, it's great. It's still got a sprinkling of the magic of Jaws and John Williams and, you know, Roy Scheider. But the other half was like, do not watch it. It's a terrible movie. It's going to sully your memory of Jaws. Um so I'm still unsure about what I'm going to do. <laughs> what do you think about it? I think it's okay. Um, you know, the, the problem is is the obvious one. There just can't be a Jaws 2. Mm. Uh, it just can't be. And I think Scheider carries it. You know, and the Williams score fills in a lot. But, you know, it just, you can't do a Jaws 2. It just can't be done. The story ended. They killed the shark. You know, the chances mm. of another big great weight showing up at Amity three years later, not very likely. I think I tried to watch a bit of it when I was doing Inside Jaws and I didn't want it to kind of sully my view on Jaws itself. And I did watch maybe like 15, 20 minutes and it felt kind of amateurish alongside Jaws. It feels very low budget. Yeah, I didn't I didn't want to continue, I, I seem to remember. As much as I can remember lines and just little, you know, physical attributes, things like that when it comes to Jaws, I have the worst time remembering Jaws 2 because I know I've seen it multiple times and I mostly remember Keith Gordon being in it just because he's kind of a friend of the show and I think I remember the beginning with Murray Hamilton and I was just very surprised that he could still be reelected. Now if you want to really drive him crazy you say 12 more years. That's about it. I, I think I remember more of Jaws 3 than I do Jaws 2. If you can't remember a movie after seeing it multiple multiple times, that kind of kind of kind of is kind of your answer right there, right? Yeah, and then Jaws 3 is just so ridiculous and I don't remember the history of the 
part three always being in 3D, but that movie just embraced it so heavily. And then when you watch it on TV and you're just like, okay, this must have been really nice in 3D, but it just looks so bad. I mean, I don't know if there's a way to make the movie look better. It, it, it was shot that way uh, for a reason. And it's, it's unfinished effects. Uh, you know, all I can say is poor Dennis Quaid and Lou Gossett. <laughs> I remember my cousin talking to me about it as we were playing with our, our Return of the Jedi speeder bikes. So it would have been Christmas 83 and he'd seen it. And I, I wasn't interested in seeing it. And he said, don't bother. <laughs> yeah. Had a great trailer, though. Uh, the trailer where they had the uh, uh, as a black screen and then a big slice goes in it. And, you know, you had the uh, Percy Rodriguez narrator. A creature alive today has survived millions of years of evolution. It lives to kill a mindless eating machine that will attack and devour anything. One terrified you like nothing you have ever experienced when it captured your imagination and tapped your fear like no movie before it. Then, just when you thought it was safe to go back in the water, two continued the legend and spread the fear. Next summer, nature's most terrifying creature takes on an all-new dimension in an all-new adventure. And for the first time, the terror of Jaws will not stop at the edge of the screen. Jaws 3D. The third dimension is terror. Ducks looked fun, but turns out it wasn't. Yeah, because the mistake all the sequels made is that they made it about the shark, and it was never really as much as I hate. There's the film reviewer here in the UK, Mark Kermode, is always saying Jaws is not about a shark. Well, it well it is. You know, as I said earlier, because that shark has got that kind of you know unchanging drive just to do what it's biologically destined to do. What we are dealing with here is a perfect engine, uh, an eating machine. It's really a miracle of evolution. All this machine does is swim and eat and make little sharks. And that's all. And it's completely unchanging in that. We have time to sort of fall in love with the characters and the situations around it, and we root for them because of that. But once you make it about the shark, who are you rooting about? Are you rooting about the people trying to kill it or the shark itself? I'm kind of rooting for the shark, especially in the fourth one, just to like get rid of, um, and this is no offense to the man, but to get rid of uh, Mario Van Peebles and his horrible Jamaican accent. I love that line that Michael Caine always says, doesn't he? That I never saw the movie, but I saw the house it bought me in Bermuda. It's a bad movie. Mm. It's not easy. This is the thing. Why are we still talking about Jaws and Star Wars and Raiders and all these things? It's difficult to make a good movie. Um, and this, you know, you have these moments, don't you, of like the perfect storm. All these things come together. And usually through some adversity as well. You know, Lucas on, on Star Wars, you know, just fighting against the elements out there in Tunisia and the, the studio of Fox. And now, you know, before that, of course, with Spielberg and, and Jaws. And it was a super hard movie to make, but it made them all the more determined to make a good movie from that experience, I would say. But when you've got, you know, Michael Caine and you've got a 
um, you're shooting out. Where were they shooting in? Was it Bermuda? In Bahamas, yeah. Nobody's going to be, everyone's going to be enjoying themselves. Nobody's going to be focused on making a movie. Well, that was Kane's thing, right? Was to go where he wanted to go for vacation. It's kind of like the Adam Sandler method now, where it's like all of his movies are being shot in Hawaii. I was really glad they put out a 45th anniversary box um, for this, and that comes with a book. It comes with, what, a 4K? I don't even know what the HD Blu-ray type thing. Like, I don't know what type of Blu-ray player I have, so I just grabbed the one that says Blu-ray because I'm an old man. Because I'm almost as – actually, no, I take it back. I'm older than this movie. What I saw, the the Blu-ray of it, looks gorgeous. And then I was so glad to have all the making of stuff put on this. And I think the only thing that I was missing is, is your filmumentary, Jamie, but to go and watch, and I forgot how fucking long some of these making ups are like the, uh, uh, <laughs> the, the making of jaws, the, uh, Lawrence, um, Buzero? I, I can't I remember how you pronounce the, uh-huh. Laurent Buzero. Yeah. The guy at the time. Yeah fucking a man i think i put that on at eight o'clock and i was still watching it at 10 30 the other night it was fantastic <laughs> so it, it tells you a lot of great things but again it kind of tells you the same thing that unfortunately you know hopefully we got away from in this podcast the same stories that you hear all the time though it doesn't have <laughs> dreyfus saying the shark is still working until you get to the shark is still working documentary so you're safe on that one well it's like i think jamie you said you know the re- the rehearsed um, memories, you know, that's, the, they're the ones that we're tired of. Yeah. I don't want to hear Dreyfus tell that story again. Sorry. The making of Jaws. I can't remember what year that came out, but then you see like Peter Benchley 10 years later, you see, um, you know, it, it's basically like a repeat of all the people, but 10 years later. And it's just like, wow, you know, I, I was doing an episode on um, last year at Marion Bad and to see Volker Schlorndorf, um in all of these different interviews about the film and to see him age through it. And you just get to see these people age through these Jaws documentaries. I think that was about 95, that Jaws documentary. Yeah. And there was one here in the UK that I mentioned earlier, like in the teeth of Jaws or something. They had a few of the different people. I think it had Mike Chapman and Bill Butler in there and some of the stories they told, you know, about in the opening scenes with Chrissy and she actually broke ribs and this, the, the take they used was the one of her screaming when it broke and, and then there's the denial of that. And I just love all of these different perspectives. You're never actually going to get to the truth no matter how many times you look at it. And yeah, I would have loved for Inside Jaws to have been on, uh, on the Blu-ray. I, I kind of credit myself with making two Steven Spielberg commentary tracks, like Raiding the Lost Art and Inside Jaws, because he doesn't do those. He doesn't like his films pulled apart. But, you know, years ago, I did speak to... Do you remember Brett Ratner, the guy who did the... What was the movies? What were those kung fu movies? Anyway, Rush Hour. Yeah, I ended up meeting him on the set of a movie in, in Budapest, just by pure chance. He'd seen Inside Jaws and wanted me involved with making stuff with him. Anyway, it never panned out. But in the car on the way back from set to the hotel, he said, has Stephen seen Inside Jaws? And I said, I don't know. I'm not in the business, you know. And he said, of course he's seen it. He fucking loves that shit. And then he said to his assistant, get Stephen on the phone. So she starts calling up Stephen. And I'm sitting there going, oh, my goodness, I'm a, I'm about to have the phone handed to me <laughs> with Stephen Spielberg. And, and she goes, oh, you know, is Stephen there, please? And there's a little wait. Oh, hi, Stephen. And she passes the phone to Brett Ratner and he mouths to his assistant, not that Stephen. 
And it was Steven Soderbergh, she called her. <laughs> so I had this moment where, you know, I could have been speaking to Spielberg. I could, have, I would have happily have spoken to the other Steven, but I didn't get the opportunity to speak to either, nor did I get the chance to make uh, any other documentaries with, with Brett. But maybe that was a good decision. I don't know. That one hurt me last night when I was rewatching uh, uh, The Shark is Still Working. And they have that montage where, like, this movie has influenced so many people. And here are some of them, including Steven Soderbergh, uh, Robert Rodriguez, Kevin Smith. And God, if I have to watch another documentary with Kevin fucking Smith in it, I'll choke myself. But then fucking Brian Singer, and I'm just like, oh, no, no, I don't want to see that. I don't need to remember Bad Hat Harry. I don't need to see this child molester on my screen. Thank you. The other book that I um, tried to read for this podcast was the BFI book on Jaws. And I usually love BFI books about stuff. I mean, I've talked about um, the... Uh, Double Indemnity, and just so many of the books that I've read over the years in preparation for episodes of, of this podcast, that has to be the worst BFI book I've ever read. <laughs> I kept thinking, like, you guys know when you watch a documentary and you get those openings where it's like, here's something about the movie and da 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 and how important it was, and now we're going to go into actually talking about the movie or talking about the, the situation – it never does that. It just, it starts off and it just is a bunch of horse shit. And I'm just like, when is this going to end? And next thing I know, I'm on page 30. I'm on page 50. I start flipping through. I'm on page 100. I'm like, it's not necessarily close reading because they don't ever pick up many themes of things. It just, I don't know, like masturbation on the page. I was just like, what the fuck is going on? It reminded me of the 33 and a third book about um, one of the Smiths albums where I was just like, what the fuck are you talking? You're not even talking about the Smiths. You're just talking about yourself. And that's what this book felt like was just the author talking about themselves rather than Jaws. I, I actually own this book. I was bought it for a birthday some years ago. I can't remember by whom, but I assume I regard them now as an enemy. Um Antonia Quirk, who wrote it, she actually presents um, a film program for BBC Radio 4 here in the UK, which is out there as a form in the form of a podcast as well. And she talks in this really sort of overly romantic, poetic, slow, laboured kind of way. But she speaks about things with such certainty that, you know, she's not she's she's expressing an opinion, really. It's her opinion. It, she speaks about it as if it is fact, though sometimes and it's a little bit overreaching for my liking and as far as i'm concerned it was it was the analysis of a completely different movie it's not the movie that i know and love that's for sure i think you know she's done some great work um on that podcast and on that radio show but i don't know maybe she was out of her comfort zone with this or maybe she felt like she had to make more out of it than is actually there you know let's just appreciate it for what it is um rather than at one point she talks about how the shark, what does she say? The shark is, the shark is scared or something or, or maybe it's, or maybe it's about, I know, maybe it's about Quint is scared. There's a moment where Quint is scared and that's why he smashes up the radio. And it's like, no, that's not how I read it. It's like, he's fucking determined. He's doing this, you know? Um, yeah, bizarre. I, yeah, I, I read it once kind of with my mouth open, just going, what? <laughs> 
I mean, there's a lot of horse shit that you can read into this if you want to. You can you can pull apart Jaws and say, oh, well, this is a metaphor for the Vietnam War and talk about how Quint is, you know, as he's a veteran of World War II and blah, blah, blah. And you can go through that way. You can take Quint Hooper and, and Brody and say, you know, one's the ego, one's the id, and one's the superego and talk about how when they're on the boat, it's like a human brain and the way that they're fighting against something that's coming out of the primordial brain, you know? You can do all that shit if you want to, but you have to do it and you have to stick with it. And it just felt like she never got any place. Is she the one? Is, is her book the one that that presents it as a, as a thing about rape? The shark is a rapist. If she did, I never made I it that, that far. Yeah. Well, I've blocked. I've blocked that out. But maybe I can't. Maybe it wasn't that one. You know, she's actually quite a good writer and a good presenter, but she kind of. She does the the sentence for style rather than content. Sometimes it feels like, you know, because she's on a radio show and she's often on a set or in a situation and she's having to describe your whereabouts. Um, she, I think she sometimes overdoes it on, on that. I don't want to kind of, you know, dig into her too much here because she's, she's pretty good. But yeah, this book, it's interesting if you have a look at like the Amazon reviews, like again, it's like five stars. Love this book. It's my favorite book of the whole series filled with smart observations and then you've got like one star i've never been so disappointed by a film text <laughs> she gets all of the interpretations wrong i completely refute quirk's comments and think she uh, and think that comedic elements are meant to bring some humanity and reality to reactions she's saying that they're they're not there for that and oh yeah this is the bit here quint is scared when he turns the boat around and is concerned about the prospect of going home with his tail between his legs He's not looking for an honorable, honorable death. Uh, I'd rather end on a happier note than that. But One of the things to say about this film, really, is that having watched it again, as I said very, very recently, it's still super fresh. And it feels like you can pull it out of the time that it was made in as well. As much as, you know, it's nice to see like 70s American coastal town life um, with just everybody, you know, all different shapes and sizes of people walking around and you get the hustle and bustle of, of what it was like there maybe, whether it's authentic or not, I don't know. But I think you can pull it out of that kind of 70, 1975 moment. And still today, it still feels brand new because of this new transfer as well. It looks like it was shot yesterday. And I think, you know, the themes that we've been talking about and the performances we've been talking about are the thing that make it that fresh as well, as well as the, um, you know, the fantastic direction and music and everything else. I just love those characters. I could watch them all day. And that's the great thing, isn't it? We can imagine where those characters came from and where they're going to go to, but we'll never know. And I love that. That's true. The movie hasn't, uh, it hasn't dated at all. It's, it's, uh, remarkable in that regard. It always surprises me that they have that shark video game, in Jaws, as opposed to it being after Jaws, because I remember seeing that video game and thinking that it was inspired by Jaws. So when they played in the game or in the movie, I'm just like, wait a second. So I guess sharks were on the brain before we even got to Jaws. There is that shot in the movie when the the ferry's kind of coming in and there's a kid in a yellow Jaws t-shirt in the shot. So the phenomenon was hitting the town as they were making the movie. I want to thank my co-hosts on this special episode, Jamie and Chris. So, Jamie, where can people go to keep up with you and your work? 
If you follow me on Twitter at Jamie SWB, that did stand for Star Wars Begins initially, but I've moved on from there a little bit. Also, filmumentaries.com. And I also have a, the Filmumentaries podcast now, five episodes in. It's a little kind of side project and uh, had some interesting guests already, and I'm hoping to continue that. Got the next two lined up soon. So, yeah, stay tuned on that as well. And Chris, what's keeping you busy? Just uh, I'm working on some uh, short fiction, trying to wrangle together a collection of uh, short horror tales. Uh, I want to call it the tales I heard on my way to hell. Um, We'll see if I ever complete it. Well, thank you again, guys. Thanks for being on the show. Thanks to everybody for listening. Please head on over to the website, projectionboothpodcast.com, where you can find out more about today's episode. You'll also find a link over to Patreon, where you can make a donation to the show. Every donation we get helps the Projection Booth take over the world.
If you enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for listening. Christopher Media, let's make some noise.